into the final weekend of the World Supersport season, dreading that nightmare scenario of Jules Cluzel finishing World Supersport runner-up once again. And he didn't. Fortunately, that's the good news. Now for the bad news. Welcome to Bite Life. Let's go! Not again, Jules. Welcome, everyone, to episode 85 of Bike Live. Looking back on quite possibly the best weekend of motorcycle racing we've seen all season. Uh, we're not <laughs> exaggerating last weekend. A brilliant weekend of action, starting with the uh, final round of the World Superbike Championship in Qatar, which included that dramatic World Supersport finale um, in conditions that I think are unique in all of my time watching motorcycle racing. We'll tell you all about that uh, shortly. Conditions so unique that forced the final race of the World Superbike season to be cancelled. Again, we'll discuss that shortly. It denied Jonathan Ray uh, another piece uh, of World Superbike history. Um, we'll also discuss the action from, without question, the best motorcycle racing circuit on the planet. Uh, as Philip Island delivered three absolute classics um, at the Australian Grand Prix last weekend. You'll have to go a long way to find a day's racing with three races back-to-back -back as good as the three we saw in Australia last weekend. Uh, we'll also bring you news on the World Supersport 300 Championship for next season. The format will be changing ever so slightly uh, because the form, because the grid is simply oversubscribed. And we'll look ahead to this weekend as the Asia-Pacific triple header of MotoGP comes to a close with the Malaysian Grand Prix where the Moto2 and Moto3 Championships are on the line uh, in uh, Sepang this weekend. Joining me to look back on Am I exaggerating there, Dre? Uh, Andre Harrison, who's with me this week, and saying that that was the best weekend of motorcycle racing. We saw five races, if you include Superbike Race 1 on the Saturday. Mm. Four of them, absolute classics. Yeah, you'll be hard-pushed to find a better weekend of racing anywhere in the world this year. It was a magnificent weekend of racing. Um, we were spoiled. Phillip Island uh, now has become almost like the Blue Ribbon event for MotoGP um as a weekend and it, it it delivered yet again and it says a lot when the moto gp race was arguably the weakest of the three and it was still a fantastic moto gp race by all accounts moto 2 and moto 3 had their best races in years um this weekend that might have very well been the best moto 3 race of all time mm -hmm. this this weekend and and Again, Multiple Sport absolutely stole the show in Qatar this weekend. And, well, for one, one for on-track reasons, one for off-track reasons. Um, and, we'll, and we'll get to that very shortly. But uh, a magnificent weekend of motorcycle racing. I can't wait to get stuck into it all. Mm, absolutely. Uh, we will uh, we'll get into it uh, in just a moment. Um, but first of all, the places you can find us. Uh, and you can start by liking us on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash motorsport101. Uh, you can also follow us on Twitter at motorsport underscore 101 uh, is the place to go. Our YouTube channel is youtube.com forward slash motorsport 101 uh, and our website is motorsport101.com. Uh, if you would like to uh, back us financially and earn yourself early access uh, to both of our weekly shows, uh, then back us on Patreon, patreon.com forward slash motorsport 101. Back us at the $5 level, you get to uh, download the podcast before everybody else. Back is at the $10 level, and you can listen in live to both of our weekly shows uh, by having access to our Discord server. Um, and uh, that obviously earns you access to uh, the bloopers that perhaps don't make the final edit. 
Um, and there are plenty those, of those, those are on a week-to-week basis. Um, <laughs> none to be found, I have to say, in this week's um, Motorsport 101, episode 167. Um, although I did think it might take Dre more than one take to um, you know, perfectly articulate his feelings on Lewis Hamilton's fifth world title. But I have to say, Dre did an excellent job. Do you know how much that hurt me, Lewis? Yeah. <laughs> you, you can see, like, if, yeah. if it's not a video, it's not a, obviously a podcast is not a visual medium, but if it was, you could see my soul slowly leaving my body. Yeah, um, it's, I mean, it's, it's, it's that Simpsons meme, isn't it? It's this is the moment you can see where his soul withers and dies. Oh, as you can see, I'm just clutching my chest right now. It, it hurts. It hurts a lot, but uh, when Lewis Hamilton is that spectacular, sometimes yeah. you've just got to take the cap and just salute just what a magnificent racing driver he is. Um, as much as it pained me to say, I mean, it's 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 quite a deep dive Mexico this weekend. Um, obviously, a quite interesting race. Not 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 the most exciting on paper, but certainly one that raised a few eyebrows and had a lot stuff to talk about obviously for Stappen dominating the whole weekend like he did last year um it looks like Red Bull's got a real ace in the hole in Mexico now which is amazing given it's got a 1.1 kilometer straight in it yeah, uh, uh, yeah Verstappen yeah, dominated all races altitude please uh, yeah yeah like Red was like yeah yeah we're, let's run all our races 5,000 feet above the ground what's the worst that could possibly go wrong um so Verstappen dominated yeah, exactly. Verstappen dominating again. Daniel Ricciardo's heartbreaking eighth DNF, DNF of the season from second and a, a, a freak hydraulic failure. The second Red Bull hydraulic failure of that weekend, believe it or not. Um, and his 11th DNF in the last 23 Grand Prix. Um, it, it, so much so, Ricardo was even saying, just fuck it, just put Gasly in the car right now. There's no point in me showing up on Sunday. When Daniel Ricardo is that deflated, the most happy man in the world normally when it comes to F1, you know that is the look of a beaten man right there. Sebastian tried as he, tried as he might um, from fifth on the grid, eventually ended up oh, fifth after a bad start, would come back up to finish in second, and he had a great drive for from him and the nature of his poll, his role in the title fight. We and I made a point of mentioning it during the show that uh, this is still the best Ferrari season for a decade, believe it or not. Even though it's it's not been enough to topple the mighty Mercedes juggernaut and uh, some of the brilliant sportsmanship that he displayed at the end of the weekend, the arm in arm moment after the race itself, the fact he actually went into the Mercedes garage himself and shook hands with everybody and came up on total wolf in his pants. As you do, uh, <laughs> I think Toto was expecting someone else, but uh, but uh, a very emotional weekend for Seb as well. You maybe even see we didn't talk about it very much during the show itself, but him crying in the press conference afterwards. I've, yeah, that that's, that spoke a lot for me. Of, of mm. um, and I know this is a bikes podcast, so uh, apologies for briefly discussing F one here. But sure, I mean, sure. But it's like there's been a lot of talk about who had the best car who didn't have the best car this season whatever whatever you think about who had the best car who, who not that that moment told me that there were genuine moments this season where sebastian vettel thought this was his yeah definitely and i mean the way this season played out especially probably in the middle of the year you know they then they stole that win at silverstone he, he had germany he had one hand on on a home win which 
once before. He's only ever won once in Germany in 2013. And uh, yeah, like the that one that slips away, the incidents like in Baku in France. Yeah, you're absolutely right. No matter which which side of the fence you're on regarding who you thought had the better car and the nuances behind it, this was kind of a weird season from, from the get-go where it was often extracurricular shit like safety cars and 50-50s that decided a lot of the championship. And yeah. Like the way Seb was emotional about it, kind of said it all. That yeah, I think it's spot on. I think there had to have been moments there where Seb was thinking he had a shot here, and it just didn't quite happen. All of that, including Sergio Perez having a disappointing home race and a brake failure and whatnot, and some of the midfield carnage and the nature of Mexico City itself, promoting what was a interesting Mexican Grand Prix. I'm not going to say to say it was good or bad, but an interesting Mexican Grand Prix. All of that and a lot more in the new section as well on episode 167 of Motorsport 101, minus five stars. Available yeah. now. Yeah, check <laughs> that out uh, right now. Uh, right, in a in a swerve that, to be honest, the Moto3 race uh, made a speciality of uh, this weekend, uh, we're going to start <laughs> in Qatar. Uh, and, huh? and the final weekend of the World Superbike season, although more to the point, the final weekend of the World Supersport season, because it was the championship decider between Jules Cluzel and Sandro Cortese. Um, it's been a terrific season between the two of them. Um, and just in general in World Supersport, we've had so many great races, so much variety, um, certainly variety of riders, even if it's not been variety of bikes winning the races this season. It's been a Yamaha uh, whitewash um, on track. Um, but an extraordinary finale, Dre, in so many ways. Uh, you know, starting with the weather. I mean... I know you weren't watching this live. I think you're at work, but it, it was mm. it was a it was an incredible atmosphere leading up to the final race of the season, which was delayed due to the weather. Where we we turned up for the final race of the season, and you know we we saw the images and we saw the videos coming from from La Salle, and we were thinking to ourselves, "We're meant to have a championship decided today, and we might not even get one." Yeah, like. Spoiler alert, kids. Middle Eastern countries like Qatar aren't used to such heavy rainfall in short amounts of time. Um, yeah, shocker. I know, right? Um, yeah, it was apocalyptic conditions. Um, kids, global warming is real. That's all I will say on, on, on that matter. Um, not to get too geographical with you here, but uh, that was a heavy amount of rainfall um out there during during the weekend and you know again shout out to our man greg haynes putting a lot of this out there on social media during the weekend itself but uh yeah um cool weather was atrocious on sunday morning um and it very much looked like we weren't going to get a race at all and um well the answer was we kind of did in the yeah. end but um you know it, 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 it was it was incredible how it, it all unfolded uh on, on the saturday afternoon uh, in the UK, obviously Saturday evening in, in Qatar, where the warm-ups happened, uh, although it was noticeable even without having to watch the sessions because it wasn't televised, but you could look at the live timing and see that the, the ta- lap times were several seconds off what you would expect mm-hmm. a, a normal dry lap time to be. Um, we saw some of the images come in of wet patches all over the circuit, um, and we then got news that a race was going to happen, but with reduced TV resources. Um, which yeah. which then kind of let us fully aware of, blimey, some real damage has been done here um, to mm. the circuit in that the podium was dismantled and they had to put that back together. The paddock show, which was supposed to be hosting the awards gala at the end of the uh, the end of the night for the season, that was medals. completely 
that was completely destroyed. It blew away. Um, <laughs> and, um, you know, a lot of the uh, sort of, you know, tents that were being used to sort of shelter the paddock facilities were blown away. The uh, banners that were over the start-finish line were blown away. Um, mm-hmm. it, it was it was extraordinary. And uh, the TV sort of compound apparently had significant damage done to it. Some trackside cameras were also d- uh, damaged to the point where they couldn't be used. And we thought to ourselves, blimey, what kind of race are we A, going to get? And B, are we actually going to be shown on TV uh, right. because of what was going on? And I know you've watched the race since, Dre. And I know it's, it's difficult to kind of retrospectively knowing what's happened to try and watch what's going on and sort of put mm. yourself in the moment of it all but i remember watching this as they went out on the sighting lap and seeing the state of the track and i was thinking to myself i'm not so sure about this yeah it's i mean like okay obviously it's not going to be quite the same for me as i mentioned i did not get to see this live because i was at work at the time but uh I watched, I was, obviously I had conversations with guys like you, Kevin and Henry, shout out to you guys, um, talking about the state of the race itself at the time. And I distinctively remember saying, well, my first thought that came into my head was, well, why did the super sport race run and the super bike race didn't run? Then you wa- actually watched the race itself and I was very nervous watching that because like every time they were coming over, it was literally two rivers. I mean, Eugene Laverty had a really good. I think it was actually. I think it was actually Jonathan Ray that had a really good picture, um, on Twitter regarding why race two got cancelled and, and the reasons as to why that was. And seeing like the picture of the you know the giant puddle under the bridge, um, it was not. It's a river <laughs> going across the home to start finish straight, and that's going to be at the best part of 190 miles an hour. Um, you can understand why one race got cancelled and the other one did, but um, the the, con- the conditions were not ideal. Let's and, let, let's um, put it that way. Yeah, and you know, I, I, you're right. You said it was you were nervous. I've got to be honest. I've been watching motorsport uh, on two wheels and four for for twenty over twenty years now, and that is up there with the most nervous I've ever felt watching a race. It was it was extraordinary <clears throat> tension. You could hear right. it in Greg and James Whitton's voices um, during the race commentary. You always know when um, you know James Whitton gives that sort of high-pitched giggle um, that you're watching something quite extraordinary. Um, mm-hmm, and, definitely. And, yeah, it, it was extraordinary. The race did finally go ahead with um, a, a major puddle down the main straight just before the break is off for Turn 1, a puddle across the middle of the track in Turn 4, um, which was the sort of the second overtaking spot on the track. Uh, another one across the track uh, at turn 15, which is the penultimate corner, and then another just at coming out of the final corner um, to go into the home straight. Now, a couple of those weren't a problem for the super spot bikes because they were in a straight line at full throttle, so you're just going to ride straight through it. Um, mm. But the the two that were basically mid-corners um, was incredible. It, it Without precedent, I can think, Dre, in a race where... We've seen a race take place on a racetrack in that state. Um, and mm. before we talk about the race that we did get um, and what went on in it, it, it's a difficult position for Dorna, for the FIM and for World Superbikes to be in. And it, I think it's a, a position that we, whether we agree or not with the decision they took, I think we can totally sympathize with the position they were in. There was a world championship to be decided it was the final race of the season, and surely they had to give it a go. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, I have a level of understanding. I mean, Dorna's already had to go through one cancelled race this year, and that was embarrassing enough for everybody involved. And yeah, I, I, I disagree with them running the Super Sport race because I think safety should should not be compromised, and it should absolutely be the number one paramount priority when it comes to all forms of sport in general, let alone motor motorsport. But I can understand from an entertainment standpoint why they felt they had to do it because this was a this was the most dramatic championship that was left on the board in bike racing this year. It was, it was, a, it was a title decider. It was the last race of the season. You don't really want a world title to do to be decided effectively in the stewards' office as opposed to the track. And with that logic in mind, I totally understand why Dorna felt they had that they had to run that race. And it, don't get me wrong, it certainly added to the drama of watching it, but probably not for the right reasons. It's like, oh my God, if someone slips on a puddle and they go over, what, like, like a certain rider in the field broke his ankle at the end of this Grand Prix. And I won't say who just yet, if you haven't seen or known the results. But if that guy's being carted off the hospital and it's a direct result of one of those puddles, what's Dorna going to say then? Uh, is that is that... Is, is that explanation of we had to decide a championship track, is that enough to justify running that race if somebody gets seriously hurt? And I think that might be the question that Dorna and Race Action have got to ask themselves in future. And, it's just, and I'm saying this not to criticise them because I've said it before, Dorna are the undisputed kings of being able to think of the think on the fly and do something to try and get a Grand Prix out there. We've seen it countless times like at Aston when there was a sudden downpour 10 minutes before the start start of the race. We've had it in Silverstone when it, where we had three quarters of the field in the pit lane ganging up on the, on the exit line. We had it in the Saxon room a couple of years ago as well when Bradle was out there on a wet bike. We've we've seen it numerous times where Dorn has had their backs against the wall and, and, and circumstances have not gone their way. Um, and they found a way to put on an entertaining Grand Prix. They've done it countless times. This one, I'm not so sure they should have done it, but I do understand why they came to that conclusion. I just mm. sincerely hope that they were, they felt okay with that in case someone did get hurt. Yeah, I have That's to say, the, the, the two championship contenders were both interviewed on the line uh, by Charlie Hiscott of mm. Eurosport, and they were both remarkably just cool with it. They, they uh, Cortese was the one who I thought Cortese would be stamping his feet saying this isn't safe guys we shouldn't be running this because he had the he had the championship to lose he was the one leading um yeah so i don't think he would have wanted to have won a championship by uh by default by a race not going ahead but indeed it's, it's still a championship i mean i mean hell i mean you know if, if it's not safe it's not safe and it it, it was it was incredible uh to, to see that the race did go ahead in those conditions I mean myas who was on pole position was saying you know this is this is a bit sketchy um, and he looked as if he was talking to Gregorio Lavia on the start line, shaking his head as if he was to say, I don't think we should be running this. And then basically we got the notice to say the race is starting in however many minutes, and I was just like, oh, jeez, something's going to happen here. We know something's going to happen because the championship's on the line. Um, and mm -hmm. we did get, again, whether you think it's for the right reasons or the wrong reasons, a thrilling race, um, a nail-biting race for the championship um, initially, it was for the lead of the race as well between Jules Clouzel and Sandro Cortese. Um, whatever side of the fence you're on, whatever your views on it, Dre, incredible skill and bravery from, in particular, I mean, from everyone out there, let's face it, but in particular, 
from Clouzel and Cortese because they were giving no quarter. They were fighting as if their lives depended on it for that world championship, even though conditions were approaching, if not beyond the limit of safety. Yeah, this, like this, you would never have guessed if it was your first ever race that this race probably shouldn't have ran it under normal circumstances because there's... Cortese and Clizel gave it absolutely everything they had. They left everything on the circuit, and just like a title decider probably should um, be with those two. You, you know Clizel was so desperately wanted to win this super sport title for years and years. He's a, he was a three-time runner-up going into this final round of the best chance he's probably ever had to win said title, knowing that he controlled his own destiny um, in going into that final round. He knew a win would win him the championship. Um, and the, the odds were just a little bit too stacked against him. He knew he was going to try everything to, to, to try and find a way around. And sadly, it was a little bit too much as he crushed out twice on the final lap, um, trying to go for it all against Sandro Cortez. And he just did not quite have enough to bring it home it's um oof um you know it, it it wasn't an ideal circumstance for it of course there was an, an extra element of danger that came with this race luckily it didn't seem to affect proceedings too much thankfully but um it was an incredible grand prix it was it was two guys that threw the house at each other and uh cortese just about came out on top he did and and the, the key moment i think in the end that decided the championship was it was around that sort of four, three laps to go mark where um, Corte, uh, Clozel, sorry, hits the front with four laps to go. He, he kind of jumps across quite a big gap. He was about seven tenths behind him. He just wiped mm. it out immediately. Jumped straight out to the back of Cortese and hit the front with about four laps to go. Uh, at which point we all shouted, bring on the wall! Um, Here we go! We thought, Here we go, Clozel's got four laps to hang on to this to win the championship. Just you know, put the barricades up um, and hold, hold Cortese off on your champion. Um, but Cortese... Obviously, with the added circumstances that if you didn't hear the post credits of last week's show, um, Cortese had to beat Clozel to the, the victory of the race because the highest had been reinstated at an earlier round in Portugal, which cost mm -hmm. Cortese a point, which meant that it was essentially a winner-takes-all finale uh, with Cortese taking a five-point lead. What really became important here was that five-point lead because if Clozel finished second... Cortese could still finish behind him and win the championship by finishing in third. And Cortese goes for a move up the inside of the one of the one corner, one of the few corners that wasn't covered by a TV camera uh, mm. due to the damage. Turn six, um, and Qatar goes up the inside, runs them both wide. A legitimate move. It wasn't a, a, a dirty move or a, an over aggressive move. It was a legitimate move. But they both ran wide. Luca Mayas, who was doing his level best, I think, just to try and stay out of it, um, given what was at stake. Goes past the pair of them into into the lead at that point, Dre, and clearly, from his pacing, qualifying, and his pace early, you know, and through the sessions in pre practice, he clearly had the pace to win the race on his own, and mm -hmm. then started to gap them. And it was in the end quite clever tactics from Sandro Cortese because you could see him slowing Cluzel up mid corner and allowing Mayas to just build up enough of a lead out front that meant that even if Cluzel could pass Cortese. My ass was just too far up the road, and it it was clever riding from from Cortese, and in the end, that was what probably swung it his way and co caused Clozel in the end on that final lap just to go for a little too much. Exactly, um, like Cortese's done his homework. He remembers how the scoreboard works. It's it's twenty five twenty sixteen, so there's only a four point difference 
between second and third. So he had, in the context of the championship, Cortese would have had absolutely no problem inviting Mahias to come through. Yes, take all meaningless victory. Um, (laughs) Knowing, yeah, like, yeah, go, yeah, go for it. You take the win. Like, it's not a problem. Um, No, but like knowing that if Mahias got away and, and, you know, was able to win the race comfortably, there was no way Cazell could win the title, even if the passed him for second and Cortese was good enough and smart enough to hold on to second place until it was too late anyway regardless of whether Cazelle had made had made a, a, a last ditch you know final to come through or you know have a dog fight on the final it would not have mattered because Lucas was, was was two seconds down the road and by that from that point his championship was over essentially so yeah, Cortese had the scoreboard and the point system in his favour um, on that one. And that's what made it work out for him. So it was a very smart tactical ride from Cortese in the end. Let Mahias get away and deal with the rest later, basically. And that's probably what won him the championship here, was that Clazelle just did not have the ability to stay in front this time, something that he's so very, very good at under normal circumstances. But... Uh, so Sandro did what he had to do. He basically bullied Cazell out of the way and let Mahias come through, and that was arguably more important to the title hope or the or the or the, or the title chances of of Cortese than uh, whether Cazell beat him on track or not. Mm. Well, we'll talk about Sandro in a moment and his his championship and how he did it and and, and what this means. But uh, we we can't escape the fact that we're we've kind of become fans of of Jules Cazell on this on this show and. <laughs> He went down twice straight on the final lap. Uh, it yeah. was it was the epitome, in a way, of Jules Clazel. It, it represents, in many ways, why he's become so popular, but also why he's ultimately not won the World Supersport Championship over so many years. He's He rides... I've never seen any rider, Dre, in any series ride with his heart on his sleeve, uh, quite like Clazel does. He's all heart, he's all guts, um, mm-hmm. often to his benefit, sometimes to his detriment. And in the end, he just, yeah, he was going to win the championship or crash trying. It was obvious. Um, and in the end, it was the latter on that final lap. He goes down at turn uh, eight, I think it was, trying to sort of line up a move on Cortese on the final lap. He then remounts, goes down again at turn 15, which, uh, as Henry Chapman points out on the on the Discord chat, um, they were taking the straight, incredibly strange line through that corner because it had a lake running across it. And they were sort of Indeed. standing the bike up and going around the outside of the corner and then leaning it over again. Um, yeah, Corte, uh, Clazel goes down there, and I, I don't want to say this guy's destined to never win the championship because you know you, you kind of feel he'll be back next year, and with the likes of Cortese and uh, uh, you're possibly Caracasulo, we don't know yet. Moving out of this championship, my ass looks like he's going to be switching to a Kawasaki next year. Clazel's mm. going to start next season amongst the favourites again um, to win the championship, but. It's just given how much he brings to every race he enters. It was it was just sad to see him lose the championship in this fashion again. Yeah, he is the emotional guy we attach to when it comes to World Supersport now, especially now Keenan has uh, moved on to drag racing, Formula One cars, yeah. and jet fighters. Um, so with him out of the way now, enjoying his inverted commas retirement, um, we, like Keenan, like like Jules Cazelle is like the real like veteran figure we we uh, we we associate emotionally with Supersport and. His, his his attempts to win the title, his you know his his, his dedication, his heartfelt feuds. Um, I remember just last year with the, the incredible fight Harafi had with Federico Caracasulo in that one, and now they 
basically beat the shit out of each other on the final lap and Gazelle just about came out on top. Um, it like He is an incredibly talented bike rider. He's the best defensive rider I've ever seen. And yeah, I don't want to go as far as to say he's never going to win the big one. Um, it, like, I, I don't want to go down that whole sporting fairy tale road of like, oh, this guy's never going to win one. Um, because Cazelle is more than good enough to do that. He's only 29 years old. He's got plenty of time to win one if he really wants to. And, you know, who knows what the paddock will look like next year. No matter which way you slice it, Cazelle will be one of the title favourites, no doubt about it. Remember, he was doing all this with a brand new team. And he still very nearly won the title. Um, you know, like you're, you're absolutely right. He is an emotional rider. Um, you know, um, he wears his heart on his sleeve. You see that come out when he's right. You can see he is desperate to win every given race he's got a chance to win at. And that's the sort of race that a lot of people will love. Um, and again, I can't believe I'm recommending somebody else's show, but because it's one of our friends, I, yeah. I will do so anyway. But the Full Throttle podcast with Greg Haynes on Eurosport, he, um, one of the earlier episodes of this year, he did a 40-minute interview with Jules Clazell, and it's a very interesting listen. So if you've got a few, you've got a few, you've got an hour every day, you're not doing anything, search that one up. It's well worth your time. Clazell's um, a great rider and a great guy, and it's uh, it's it's I'm, I'm gutted for him that that not only did he he crash out because of Mahias's reinstated victory and then you know winning subsequently again in Qatar he doesn't even get the run-up spot he finishes third for god's sake yeah. not even the silver it's like one more kick to the teeth for Jules to end the season not even second third what a piss take yeah. um, like, <laughs> it's hard not to feel bad for Jules on that one and of course he breaks his ankle on the final lap of that crash as well which is another yeah, I would say kick but that might be a bit insensitive to say it, um, it, it, it appears to be of insult to injury isn't it no, uh, in, in the end for Cluzel. Um but when there has to be a loser there has to be a winner the winner and the world champion is Sandro Cortese um, and in many ways a similar kind of championship ultimately to last year's in that it wasn't the guy that ultimately did the most uh, winning that won the championship it was the guy who was the most consistent Cortese mm. scored points in every single race um, which very few riders did um, Cluzel we shouldn't ignore the fact he had three non-scores this season, albeit one of them was because he was knocked off by Cortese. Um, we, sh- we shouldn't forget Whoops. that at Portimao <clears throat> this season. Cortese remounted and finished as what became sixth in that race when Mahais was reinstated. Um, but we shouldn't forget with Sandro Cortese, this is whatever level he's ridden at before, this is a rookie to the championship. Mm-hmm. He-, he was... Up until about a month before the start of the season, he was planning to be in Moto2 this year with the Kiefer team. Lost his ride because the team couldn't afford to run two riders. Signed mm-hmm. up for the Calio team, who, again, they're a fairly new team on the scene in Supersport themselves. You know, They're not the quote-unquote factory Yamaha team in this paddock. It's the GRT team that are with Mahias and Karen Casulo. So this team right. deserves, deserves an awful lot of credit as well. And Cortese... I don't care what level you're at, Dre, for any rider to go into any class, any world championship level series and win it as a rookie, you've got to have done something pretty special. Are we forgetting that Cortese's a world champion? Like, I think we might have forgotten all the years. Two levels now, Moto3 and Supersport. He is a two-time world champion in two different biking disciplines. He is a talented, talented rider. We we forget that about Sandro Cortese. He was a moto. He, he was a moto free champion. You know, not all that long ago. Beat like, to win it. 
Yeah, exactly. He's and you forget he's still only twenty eight years old. He is a phenomenally talented guy. So he's now a two time world champion in two different biking disciplines. He walked into this class as a rookie, having not ridden a Super Sport six hundred on this level, and he's come out and he's beaten the reigning world champion on the same bike as him. Let me point out, it was Lucas Mahias. Um, you know, Jules Cazell, who is a long running veteran of the series and is a guy that is universally respected in the paddock. And this was arguably the most competitive and closest Super Sport title we've had in quite some time. You know, we had Randy Krimenacker take the early part of the season as well. He was very, very fast. Rafael De Rosa, again, was consistent. And, um, maybe not had the ultimate pace to win races on a regular basis, but he was still able to, you know, to go out of his way. And, and you know, get amongst the leading field. So we had a really competitive Super Sports 600 class year, a fantastic season in that sense where, you know, I don't want to be that guy, but maybe losing Keenan from through retirement was probably a good thing for the series on the whole because I think it opened things up a little bit more. And, you know, a lot of the guys in the field were on a similar level. And Cortese's come in first year and beaten all of them. Um, now how much you want to write that down to his Moto3 experience and Moto2 experience, who knows? Um, I'll let you be the judge on that one. But he's a talented guy. And like I said, to come in as a rookie and to go on and win like that was very, very impressive indeed. Um, you know, just to you know, just wrap it up to pitches for you, two wins and, and another, you know, eight podium finishes over the 12 races. As you say, he maybe didn't have the ultimate race craft and speed that Jules Clazell did over a season, given Clazell won five times this year. But he finished every single race this season in the top six with eight podiums, with two victories. Didn't really make very many major mistakes over the course of the season. And that was enough to win him the title by 23 points. And, you know, almost a race in hand as well. I mean, no matter which way you slice it, I said very impressive for Cortese to come in and do that straight away. Yeah, it looks like he's going to be a, a one and done uh, World Superspot champion as well. Cause it looks like he's going to be heading up. Uh, to World Superbikes next year with the GRT team who look like they're going to be going uh, up into the Superbike class themselves. Um, mm. Cortese's one of their riders. It doesn't look as if they're going to take my ass with them because uh, he, rather curiously, looks like he's going to be joining uh, Keenan Safoglu's old team, uh, the Pachetti Kawasaki team. And with, you know, without, uh, admittedly, without Safoglu in their team, perhaps we uh. never really knew how good that Kawasaki still was um, in the Superbike class. And perhaps if we'd still had a fully fit fully firing at his peak Keenan Safoglu on a Kawasaki this year, maybe we wouldn't have been talking in these terms about how dominant Yamaha were. Um, maybe yes. maybe Kawasaki would have still been a contender with the right rider on their bike, and we'll see next season uh, with my ass on it. Um, but a terrific win for him, a great way to end his season. You know, Four podiums out of the last four races, having gone, uh, what, some six races without one, uh, from Aragon through to, uh, through to uh, Mizano. Um, where he crashed out there. It's amazing, having gone through that run of races, six without a podium, that he still finished only 23 points off retaining his title um, in the end. Um, and he will look back on events like the crash at Imola, the crash at Mizano, where he was in strong positions in both, um, yeah. and think to himself, you know, he might have been closer than we realised to, to retaining his title had those incidents not gone against him um, this season. But I'm going to end the season for him to win the final race of the season. He won it by two seconds from Cortese with Caracasulo uh, holding off the Austrian Thomas Gradinger to, to take the final podium in. He's Third, coming Gradinger. on strong at the end of the year, hasn't he? Yeah, <laughs> Gradinger, he was the sole NRT rider 
uh, in the end across the line. And he's ended the season with three consecutive fourth place finishes. Um, so, um, so the Austrian youngster has, as Dre said, ended the season strong. Um, as we'll tell you in a moment when we tell you the championship final standings. Uh, Randy Krimenaka, who kind of hasn't ended the season strongly, finished fifth ahead of another rider who looks to have a real future in this class. Corentin Perillari, the uh, Frenchman on the GMT 94 Yamaha. He finished sixth mm. ahead of Hector Barbara, whose best days are probably behind him, in seventh. Uh, Rafa de Rosa, eighth on the MV. Uh, Hannes Soma, ninth on the race days Honda. And Peter Sebastian on the CIA Landlord Insurance Honda finishes tenth. Uh, the other points positions went to Edson Badovini, uh, Loris Cresson, uh, Jamie Van Sicklerus, Curtis Stanger, and Nacho Calero. Um, just 16 finishes. The one finisher not to score a point was the Brit Alex Murley on the Larini uh, Honda. Clizel, of course, was among the retirements having gone down on the final lap of what was a 12-lap sprint race. Sandro Cortese then wins the championship by 23 points from Lucas Mayas, who, as Drew mentioned, stole second at the final race from Jules Clozel, who kind of feels as if he deserved better than third overall in the end with everything he's contributed to this season. Um, but, I mean, yeah, and I suppose, in a way, it's kind of the reverse of last season where he pinched second at the end from Safoglu. Um, so, yeah, it's uh, it's it's one of those. Um, Randy Krimanaka, he finishes the season fourth overall. Didn't finish on the rostrum after that Assen miracle ride from the back to second. Wasn't on the podium Krimanaka. again since then. <laughs> Um, finished fifth or fourth or sixth in every single race since then, um, and as a result, finished fourth. Caro Casulo finishes the season in fifth uh, on 143 points, and sixth overall going to Rafael De Rosa. He wins the uh, honor of being the best non-Yamaha rider in the series. And uh, to be honest, it wasn't even close. Um, he finishes on 133 points, almost twice the points of the next rider not on a Yamaha, uh, which was Carl Smith in eighth. Um, between them was the aforementioned Gradinger, who uh, finishes the season very strongly to finish 7th overall, ahead of Smith, and Luke Stapleford, who did half the season on a Triumph and half of it on a Yamaha, finishes ninth, and Anthony West, who, uh, you know, history books in uh, a couple of years' time might well show his results being expunged for anti-doping reasons, we'll see. Uh, but as mm. it stands at the moment, he ends the year 10th overall uh, in the Supersport World Championship. It's been quite the season. Uh, now, very briefly, before we move on to events in Phillip Island, World Superbikes, because um, of course their second race didn't happen um, in the end. And I guess, Drake, given that it was something of a dead rubber um, with the championship long since decided, and given that the wet patches had a different effect on the World Superbikes because they don't run a cut slick tyre like the Super Sports do, mm. um, there is absolutely no water clearance in those tyres. The lake going across uh, the circuit approaching turn one wasn't before the braking zone for the superbikes. It was bang smack on the braking zone for them. Um, And given that it was kind of the the opposite effect than you'd think, those lakes, it wasn't getting um, easier as the races or as the night unfolded because it was just trickling down through the gravel traps. It was actually getting worse as the night unfolded. Exactly, yeah. There was really no other option but to can it. Yeah, I mean, again, context was different here, as uh, the reasons Lewis alluded to. Um, you know, having full slicks makes it more dangerous. The fact that, like, obviously, because the obviously because the closing speeds are a hell of a lot higher, breaking a lot earlier, and as mentioned, where these rivers were, we're right in breaking zones, which means trail breaking is kind of out of the question here. Because um, the last thing you're going to be doing on a bike that fast is trail breaking at the best part of 190 miles an hour. Um, 
no um it's that's it, a that's a hard no you, you're gonna be you're gonna have like 15 busted collarbones and people dropping it straight away uh, going into those breaking areas so no completely understand um i think that was the right decision um superbike race was a complete no-go um and you know shame for the fans all three of them that showed up i'm, I'm gutted them they didn't get a full re- weekend's experience uh, but uh yeah they, they could run a race there that was that was a no-go no, they couldn't. And, uh, yeah, the other guy, I suppose, that would have been disappointed was Jonathan Ray um, because it was the, the one race day in the last three months that he didn't turn up and win on um, because <laughs> the race never happened. He, of course, was going for a, a record um, on the sun, oh, sorry, on the Saturday, of course, the day of race two because he equaled Doug Poland's all-time record for most wins in a single Superbike season on the Saturday, 17 of them. Um, 17 out of 25 is the ultimate final figure for Jonathan Ray. Of course, had he got to 18 on the Saturday, it would have broken Doug Poland's record that stood since 1991 um, for the most wins in a Superbike season. Of course, he could have broken his all-time points record as well. Didn't get the chance to do that either. Um, But let's talk about the race that he did win, Dre. Another virtuoso display. And again, we've said this a few times. It's going to be very difficult now talking about Jonathan Ray to say anything that we haven't said before about Jonathan Ray. But I guess from the season he's had, there was only one way to uh, bring the curtain down on it, and that was with another virtuoso victory. Yeah, it's like how how much do I try to not sound like a broken record? It's yeah. like I've got I've got the I've got a thesaurus in front of me just in case I run out of words. Um, it's the problem. Um, but uh, hey, um, eleven consecutive victories as we I mean keeping score at home, eleven in a row to end the year and 12 out of the final 13 if you include that Kawasaki team incident at Bruno race two ever since that incident Ray's literally been perfect there is no other way to describe it um he's been perfect he has won all 11 possible races since that has happened he is on a different level from for lack of a better term he's just just, just as simple as that he has been outstanding and again like tom sykes just did not have an answer for him and just you know ray just beat him in the most efficient way possible off the line into turn one and that was it we just didn't you just didn't know it at the time and i mean sykes basically tried tried throwing the house at him in the early stages to try and ruffle him but just couldn't find a way to make a move anywhere and then by that point ray had just inched himself away uh far enough to keep a com- keep a comfortable lead and uh, yeah, that that was the end of that. Really, unfortunately, just yeah, like from a competitive standpoint, yeah, Ray wins again. Another another outstanding ride where just no one could touch him. Yeah, outstanding ride. So, uh, in the absence of new things to say about Jonathan Ray, let's talk about some other people um, <laughs> in the race. Um, starting with Chas Davies, who you know was a bit of a bit part player through the weekend. Kawasaki dominated. Yamaha and Aprilia were the nearest contenders to them. In the one race we got, Ducati were uncompetitive by their recent standards. Uh, but Chas Davies does finish as runner-up to Jonathan Ray and finishes runner-up for the third time in four years. Now, it's not exactly like he's been a close runner-up in any of those years. He's been a long way behind Jonathan Ray. But be that as it may, Dre, he has, in an era where Jonathan Ray has been the clear best in the world in superbike terms, Chas Davies has been the clear second best in the world. Yeah, he has. Um, and I think, um, given the, how Ducati were so strong at the start of the year, I think it's only fitting that Ducati uh, and Chaz, it's in particular, uh, is runner-up again. I mean, it's not it's not the best look. Um, 
given that he finished nearly 200 points behind Jonathan in the end. I mean, that's mm. there's no nice way of saying that, unfortunately. But um, no, everybody else in play, I mean, especially given Chess Ch- had to come back from not one but two collarbone breaks um, as well over the course of the year. He's had to really, you know, try hard. Um um, to, to get into that, get into that position and come back and still ride strong. I mean, there was an interview with Chaz after the race, after after um, the Eurosport finished their coverage for the weekend, where he said, "I'm just looking forward to being healthy again," which I think kind of just sums up Chaz's season, mm. especially in the latter half, where you know he might feel like you've had a, probably would have had a better chance of stopping Ray's unstoppable reign of terror in the end of the season if he'd just been fully fit um because you can tell he was struggling after the collarbone breaks he had in in during the off season during you know practicing and whatnot and some somewhere a former co-host is shouting to the heavens about the not so strong benefits of training but um ibex um but uh yeah it's um not not an ideal for not an ideal year for chaz i think chat is going to be looking at themselves saying where did it all go wrong given they they were so strong while coming out of aragon and yet they let it all slip away. I mean, I don't think Ducati won another race after Aragon they this year. They, they, they did not. No. Um, so just I was done that, but they won four out of the four, they won four out of the first six, and then didn't win again for the rest of the year. I mean, in, um, in many ways, it, it represents just how dominant Jonathan Ray was this year because he won seventeen races himself this year. Nobody else won more than two uh, in the entire season. <laughs> There were, there, were, there were only eight races. Of course, with the final race not happening, there were only eight races this season that Jonathan Ray didn't win. Um, with, with two wins for Chaz, two wins for Marco Malandri, um, uh, a couple of wins for Michael Vandermark, of course, on one weekend at Donington, and then a win apiece for Alex Lowe's and Tom Sykes, um, both of which were in reverse grid races. Um, Sykes had um, one win. Jesus yeah. Christ. Sykes has had one win in, on the same bike as Jonathan Ray. Um, there were only three for my mat three race ones um, out of a possible uh, 13 that Jonathan Ray didn't win. Um, and of course, three races on reverse grids that he didn't win. Um, one of which, of course, was because his teammate knocked him off, uh, as we've already covered um, at Bruneau. Um And let's actually talk briefly Tom Sykes, Dre. Of course, it broke mm. the end of near, uh, near a decade of, of service to Kawasaki. Of course, that's included mm. a world championship. In 2013, it's included two very near the world championships as well. Of course, he was a half a point away from winning it in 2012. He was one race away from winning it in 2014, where, of course, he went into that final race of the season, battling for the championship with Slovan Gintoli in Qatar. Um, he's essentially, I, well, I don't want to overrig it too much, but he has got a lot of the credit at his, at his door for Kawasaki becoming what they are today uh, and becoming the juggernaut that they are because... They were not. They were bit part players. They were a midfield outfit um, back when Tom Sykes took his first and Kawasaki's first win with this mm. current ZX10R back in 2010 at the Nurburgring um, in in terribly wet conditions. And then around 2012 time with the new bike, it changed and they became front runners uh, all of a sudden. And you just need to look at the numbers. I mean, he's the greatest Super Pole rider of all time. He's now got 48 pole positions in mm. the Superbike World Championship, which when you consider that there are only, on average, 13 chances per season to get a pole position, to have 48 of them in his career is remarkable um, yeah. for, for Tom Sykes. Um, 
countless podiums as well. A world championship as well. I think he's fourth on the all-time wins list in World Superbike history himself. Um, it's very easy to look at him in the eyes of, well, he was never as good as Jonathan Ray. Quite frankly, no one ever has been in World Superbike history. But in terms of his service to Kawasaki, he's been a tremendous servant. He has absolutely been a tremendous servant. I think mean, that's the way that's what sum up. We like we forget he has thirty eight career victories. Like it's it is a really like like it's it's hard to put it into context because obviously we've been so fixated on Jonathan's success in the last four years and you know he's basically rewritten the record books at this point, Jonathan. Um but we forget that before that time came along, the backbone and 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 the real beating heart of Kawasaki and, and the rider that brought them back into prominence in to begin with was Tom Sykes, a guy that's got a world title. 34 wins to his name, almost 250 career races. The vast majority of them with Kawasaki, over 200 of them with him. Um, like, we like, it Jonathan, makes you think if Jonathan Ray never joined Kawasaki, how many titles would Tom Sykes have? It's a terrifying thought. Like, some of the title fights in him and Davis could have been electric. Yeah. Um, um, because, like I said, like. Sykes was the was the like Sykes could have been the big benefactor of Kawasaki finding themselves again. Instead, it was Jonathan. And hey, Kawasaki might not have been as, as appealing a team to join if it wasn't for Tom Sykes making the bike look so good. Absolutely. Um. So you know, Kawasaki owes a lot to Tom Sykes. Um. He put Kawasaki back on the map, and, and then was basically accidentally the biggest reason for Jonathan now being the face of them as a promotion and as the face of them as, as a manufacturer and a factory team again. And like they owe Tom a lot of backdated checks and a lot of backdated credit for that, for that, for that success um, and for their reputation that's preceded them. Now um, a lot of that has come from Tom Sykes and, you know, he's the fastest superbike rider over a lap we've ever seen. And, that will cement his place in history no matter what happens for the rest of his career. And it's, 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 it's a little bit of a shame that Jonathan has come along and it's kind of made, it's diminished Sykes a little bit in the grand scheme of things, which is just the natural nature of motorbike racing and competition um, in sports sometimes where it doesn't quite tell the full story. But Sykes' career numbers are outrageous. He's one of the best of all time, no matter which way you slice it. And... As much as he moves on to the next chapter of his career with BMW, I look forward to seeing how that shakes out. And hey, maybe a fresh start for Sykes will do him some good. Mm -hmm. um, especially if BMW are staying to their commitment of more factory support for the, um, you know, for Sean Mir and the team he's joining with Marcus Reiterberger, which they owe it to themselves, really, given how popular they are as a superbike manufacturer. So I hope it works out for Tom because I think he needs like, the way he was talking to Eurosport halfway through the year. He seemed like he needed a, a a new challenge and a clean break. I think he I think he saw that. Um, you know, that was now Jonathan's team at Kawasaki, and understandably so, given his success. So, yeah, I, I look forward to seeing the next chapter of Tom Sykes' career. But he, uh, but, but Kawasaki owes him a lot, and I'm glad they paid tribute to him this weekend because he, he's done a lot for that factory. It's ton. And, and Sykes has also never hidden the fact that he's, he's been second best in this, in this battle. I'll still remember back at the start of 2015 how excited we all were to see these two go head-to-head -head in Kawasaki and, quite frankly, uh, and as much as it pains Ray to, to say good things about Lewis Hamilton on, on this Motorsport 101 this week, it doesn't pay me to say good things about Jonathan Ray, but it pays me a little to, to have to admit, but it, it's unavoidable. Jonathan Ray has been 
he's won it hands down. It's been a landslide um, against Tom Sykes. Uh, and Tom Sykes said himself this week, he said, we've been together for four years on this Kawasaki and he has ridden it better than I have. Um, which is quite simple, but it pretty much covers the bases. Um, the one race we got then was won by Jonathan Ray. It was a Kawasaki 1-2 uh, in the end with Sykes in second. Alex Lowe's winning a brilliant final lap with Eugene Laverty um, to take third. Uh, with Laverty fourth in what could yet be his final World Superbike race for a while. Um, we hope not, but that's a strong possibility. Marco Melandri, likewise, fifth. Um, Loris Baz, sixth. Uh, Michael Vandermark missed the chance to finish his championship runner-up in seventh, ahead of Chas Davies, eighth. Jake Gagne, ninth. And Toprak Rasgatioglu in tenth. Chavi Forez fell all the way to 13th. Now, there's a quick story on that before we move on. He was uh, one of a number of riders who... Hmm were caught out by the timing gantry on the start-finish line, getting ahead of itself, quite literally, mm. um, by displaying at the start of the final lap that the race had finished. Chevy um, Ford, apparently it was it got a lap ahead of itself from about lap four, um, and was basically a lap ahead of what it should have been from that point onwards. And Chevy Forrest, along with a couple of other riders, Chance Davies said he saw the same, he noticed it, started mm. to slow down because they thought the race was over. Um, and Chavi Forres went from, I think it was 6th or 7th at the start of the last lap, went all the way down to 13th because he just slowed down as he crossed the line and noticed everyone at racing speed motor past him. Um, and, you know, not Chavi's fault. I mean, you know, I guess you could, if you're, being really, if you're being really cruel, you could say, well, wasn't he keeping count? Um, or wasn't he watching his pit board? But, hell, you see the gantry with a checkered flag symbol on it and you think, well, the race is over then. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, um, so, yeah. Chavi has every right to feel a little bit short-changed with that and as if he's been kind of robbed a little bit of some points. Um, although it didn't ultimately, I don't think, uh, cost him uh, any positions in the championship based on where Alex Lowe's finished. Um, here is how the championship's finished then. Jonathan Ray wins it with 545 points. Yeah, that's that's a pretty slim total based on what he got last season. But have we got the final race here? He would probably have broken his record. Uh, he won, just to reiterate, 17 out of 25 races uh, in 2018. He wins the championship by just the 189 points from Chaz Davies in second. Um, for, uh, Davies beat uh, Vandermark uh, to second and third by 23 points. Um, Vandermark finishing third overall. That's the best the Yamaha have been in this championship since 2011. Uh, when, they, of course, they last ran in the series before pulling out. Tom Sykes finishes fourth. That's the first time... Uh, I believe since 2011 that he's finished outside the top three in the World Superbike wow. Championship, finishing fourth. Marco Melandri fifth. Uh, it seems like a lifetime ago that he doubled up at the very start of the season um, to uh, take the championship lead. He finishes uh, on 297 points, which is just over half the total of the eventual champion, Jonathan Ray. Uh, Alex Lowe's finishes sixth ahead of Forres in seventh, who, of course, confirmed himself as the best independent rider last time out. Uh, in Argentina. Uh, Eugene Laverty, 8th. He pinched that from Toprak Rasgatioglu in the final race of the season. Uh, Toprak finishes ninth at the end of his rookie season, and Lorenzo Savadori completes the top 10. Um, he finished the season on 138 points. Right, the World Superbike Championship returns uh, next year in Phillip Island, and uh, after this brief musical break, uh, we will switch our attentions to the MotoGP weekend in Australia. This is a musical break that if, if your name is Andre Harrison, you'll particularly enjoy uh, because he enjoys this piece of music. It's a piece of music that inspired the title of this episode. Q Mark Morrison. Yes. 
yes, Return of the Mac. It's a, a show title that Dre has been having up his sleeve all season um, as we've waited for Yamaha to uh, finally take a victory and more to the point, Mac Maverick Vinales um, to take his first victory since Le Mans 2017. Yamaha's first victory since uh, Assen 2017. 490 days prior um, to uh, Sunday at Phillip Island. Um, we did talk it up on last week's show, Dre. I think, to be fair, pretty much everyone was. This was the one. If Yamaha were going to get any kind of victory in 2018, Phillip Island was the place it was going to happen. And in fairness to them, and in fairness to Maverick, they converted it. They did. Um Opportunity befell them. Um, Maverick Liddy had Mark Morrison going for his ears before the race had started. <laughs> a fine choice, if you ask me myself. Um, totally unbiased fan over here. But um, no, like, I, I completely echo that. I mean, this was the, the biggest chance they were going to have, I think, of winning a Grand Prix, a track for the pilot that tends to be an equaliser. Um, it it tends to be a track that you know it's hard to break a toe. Um, there, there's multiple lines you can take. There's no there's no real wrong way to build a bike for this place, and it brings it brings fields together. And um, yeah, Maverick strategically got it spot on. He took advantage of a, of a nasty situation involving Johan Zarco and Mark Marcus, which we'll get to in a minute. Um, you know, you use that as, as his opportunity to pounce. Took, took the front, put in the two fastest laps of the race, and that was it, effectively. He mm. was several seconds gone by the end of the race, and obviously by, by, by that point, Ian Oney was starting to reel him in again, but not enough of a rate to, to ultimately affect the outcome. But uh, tactically, Maverick got it spot on, um, timed it to perfection, broke free, and and, and took that you know, took that first victory for him personally in 27 Grand Prix. Um Good to see Maverick back in the winner's circle. Yeah, and, I think, I, I, think we, I mean, we've been we've been critical of him this year. I don't think we've necessarily Absolutely. been unfairly critical of him. Um, but but even so, he's a rider who, when he's when he's struggling and when he's not happy, you know about it. Um, mm. But it, it it is great to see a kid um, with undoubted talent happy again. It's good to see him smiling. It's good to see the best of Maverick Vinales again, because we know how good he can be. Um, mm. And um, I've got two points to make on this. The first of them is about Yamaha themselves as a team. Um, because let's not, although this is a day of great celebration for them, let's not try and let this paper over too many cracks. There's still a lot of deficiencies with their bike. However, yes. um, Philip Island as a track clearly is a circuit that accentuates the positives and the strengths of that Yamaha, which are corner speed, particularly in the fast corners. They are brilliant through those fast corners, that Yamaha, that Yamaha M1. And Andre Dovizioso, I'm paraphrasing him a bit because I don't have the, the identical quote in front of me but I'm pretty sure he said it was the effect of when he was following that bike particularly in the early stages of the race he said the potential of that chassis is frightening um, when, when discussing that Yamaha and he was basically saying that look if they can sort out the deficiencies that they have with the electronics and the engine that chassis is remarkably good it's, it's you know if they can iron out the weaknesses of that bike they can they can start winning races regularly again um, was basically Davizioso's takeaway from following that bike at close quarters in, in Australia. Um, and it, it's, a, it's a fillet that Yamaha badly needed. Of course, they, they will not be blind to the fact that their bike still has major weaknesses, but this is just the boost this team needed. I mean, I think it would have been a huge psychological blow to this team to go an entire season without winning. And, you know, with a, a European test team coming on stream next season, 
with the Patronus back to Yamaha team that's going to get much closer factory support and collaboration than Tech 3 ever got for next season. Mm. It does appear as if Yamaha, belatedly it has to be said, admittedly, are getting their house in order a bit. Yeah, and they had to. Um, we, I think back, I harken back to to uh, Austria and their own bosses coming out in front of the team and apologising for their own poor development. Um, that is something that I had never ever seen in all the years I've been watching motorsport, where where the big boss is coming out with a letter of apology to his riders. Yeah. Um, again, goes to show you how much Paul Valentino Rossi has in that team still. Whereas, like the boss is apologising to Rossi for not having a good enough bike for him but i think uh, but i think he had so much pull dre that i think the team's attitude had almost become so complacent they thought nah valentino maverick will sort it yeah exactly and on paper it's an exceptional team so why wouldn't they be thinking that and i think you're right i think there was a level of complacency that had come along but that's, I think well, that's they... where honda are different aren't they because even though maverick even though mark is clearly the best rider in the world that hasn't stopped them trying at every turn to improve the honda yeah, they've tried at every turn to improve the Honda. Oh, and they're bringing in Jorge Lorenzo next year. <laughs> Just saying, if you were bored of this Marquez dominance, guess who's, guess who's this teammate going to be next year? What a terrified thought for all of us. Uh, you know, uh, uh, only 13 more titles between them, kids. You know, no big deal. I'm counting. Um, but uh, no, you're absolutely right. I mean, and I say this as, as as the fan of bike racing. Yamaha needs to be at the front. Yamaha yeah. are two. Like, they're arguably the most. They're arguably the biggest and most influential factory of them all when it comes to bike racing. Now, Valentino Rossi is an icon of this sport, and he's probably now more known for his time with Yamaha than his time with Repsol Honda. And and that is still the juggernaut number one figure in this sport. Maybe it's not quite as big a number one margin as it was a couple of years ago, but it's still an important influence. And it's, and this sport, we've clearly seen the sport does better when we have more guys at the top competing with each other. It's much more yeah. interesting. And Yamaha seems to have been replaced in that headlining orange versus blue era of maybe like the early 2010s. Um, and has been replaced by Ducati and Davizioso and now obviously Lorenzo to a degree. And, you know, we'll, we'll see what happens with Petrix next year. But you're right. Like, like it's, it's like Yamaha needs to be back up the front. And it's a very important win for them from a psychological standpoint. And as you say, they are not taking this line down. It's taken them a punch to the gut to get their house in order. But they seem to be making the right steps into finding ways to improve. I mean, having a European test team is a big step. They were way behind where that was Jonas concerned. Volker they have a test rider too. And Jonas Volger is an excellent Grand Prix level motorcycle racer in his own right to have as a, to have as a test guy in, in the back office. They're going to have a second satellite team again next year with their own backing with Patronus. who have got big money backing them, you know, exciting riders like Fabio Quattararo, um, underneath them on the bike, um, and with Morbidelli, who I think is a great coup um, for, for Yamaha to have as a talent. I think he's, I mean Morbidelli's got a good chance still of winning Rookie of the Year. So there's there's a lot to look forward to with Yamaha going forward. And if they can, and if Dovi himself, a man that knows what a title winning bike looks like, given he's you know, he's been second fiddle to one when Casey Stoner won the title in 2011, and seeing the and basically being the forefront of the rise of Ducati again as a manufacturer. Um, if he's coming out and saying that Yamaha's chassis is the real deal, then uh, it it won't take much for Yamaha, I think, to fix themselves and get back up the front again. There's too much riding on them not to do it, if you ask me. Mm. 
Yeah, I agree. And um, the second point I wanted to make as well was much less on Yamaha, but more on Maverick. Um, because, first of all, as I said already, I'm very happy to see him smiling again, see him winning again. And I think the whole paddock was, it seemed a very popular win um, mm. last weekend to see Maverick Vinales win the race. You saw the emotion um, in his eyes, that on-board shot facing his facing the, the front-facing shot of, um, of Maverick um, on the slowdown lap. But the point I was going to make, Dre, is has this weekend, and that has the two races that we've seen recently in Thailand and Australia, have they reinforced the view that we've kind of had all season where when the Yamaha works, Maverick just seems to be slightly better than Valentino? Are you reminded on Twitter earlier today, Maverick is the ceiling, Valentino Rossi is the floor. When the bike works, Maverick, I think, has an extra couple of attempts that Valentino Rossi doesn't have. He was actually, he spoke about it to BT Sport today, as we record this on Thursday night, um, on November 1st. Um, he, he, he saw him and talked to Gavin Emmett and talk about how he was disappointed in his own performance because... He finished down the order while Mavericks winning. He was, he was, of course, he was happy to see a Yamaha win again. He was got He just got it. It wasn't him because Rossi himself was in sixth place and, and way off the leading group in the end. He, he, he did not have the pace to stay with his teammate, which is never a good sign in, in any motorsport battle. Um, of course, and here's the thing: Valentino's only 15 points ahead of Maverick in the championship now. It's not straightforward. Rossi will leave this season as number one Yamaha again. So, like. It's not locked up yet, and Rossi will be raising an eyebrow at that. Well, how was my teammate able to win, and I was still so far off the pace? It's uh, it's not a good sign for Valentino going forward, and it's one where he may have to be a little bit careful um, going on here because, uh, yeah, like I think when the bike works, I think Maverick's natural talent is a little bit higher. I don't think Rossi's got the ultimate pace he once had to keep up with him. Um, so... You know, um, the way it's going right now, I mean, Rossi has obviously been borderline heroic at times in, you know, doing what he can to uh, to get that Yamaha into positions he sometimes doesn't deserve to be in. But when it does work, if he wants title number 10, he so desperately wants. Uh, and I think, he's, I think he's trying to play it down at this point, but I still think he really does. Mm. He needs oh, to he get on top of the white if he didn't. Yeah, he needs to max. Yeah, he needs to maximize its full potential, and that's something that Maverick does do better than him when the bike is performing. Yeah, it's it, it is fascinating, and we'll see if that Yamaha is back up the front again next year. We'll see how that dynamic changes because it's as we've said, it's clear that you know Yamaha ideally would want a rider that you know performs like Maverick when the bike's going well, but yet performs like Valentino when the bike isn't performing well, um, and. Maverick still has, I think, a lot to learn. And it, it was noticeable just to see him come alive um, last weekend and in Thailand as well, um, you know, and to be so competitive when the bike was performing well. Um, and it's it's up to Maverick, I suppose, in the future, just to show that, you know, either, either it's either up to Yamaha to provide a bike that works more consistently or it's up to Maverick Vinales to find that level of consistency and basically have that sort of B game um, that, that Valentino clearly has where... You know, even on his his bad days, Valentino can still finish in the top five, top six. Um, whereas if Maverick's having a bad day, you know about it because he's finishing bottom end of the top ten. Um, so, so that'll be a lesson I think that Maverick has to take into twenty nineteen. Um, we, we it would be unfair, I think, to say that he wouldn't have won the race without this big incident earlier in the race. But it certainly would have been harder for him because he would have probably had Mark Marquez 
um, to deal with in the closing stages of the Grand Prix. Um, Maverick Vinales. But let's talk about this terrifying incident at Doohan's Corner. The same Jeez. corner that we shouldn't forget claimed Cal Crutchlow in free practice. It broke his, his ankle and caused him to miss mm. the rest of the weekend. He'll also miss this weekend in Sepang, Stefan Bridal stepping in. Um, and may well miss Valencia as well. We don't know yet whether Cal will be fit in time for the final race in two weeks' time. Um, but whilst battling for what I think was third place in the race at the time, Mark Marquez is heading towards Doom Corner, and essentially, Joan Zarco rides straight up the back of him. And I still don't know, Dre, how neither rider was injured. Yeah, that was a terrifying accident. You can see it. Like, Andre Iannone had the best seat in the house for it, and he was directly behind the two of them as it happened. Um, Zarco rides into the rear of Marquez's bike at 190 miles an hour. Um,. It is a terrifying accident. It was obviously, Zarko's bike immediately loses control and collapses. He gets flung off the track a good two, three hundred feet from where the incident actually happens. Thank God Zarko was okay. He was able to walk away from it. Um, again, more ego bruised than anything else, I reckon, um, thankfully. Um, Marquez was unable to continue. It basically broke the entire rear fairing of the bike. His seat was, was loose. Uh, wasn't able to continue. Also, it, was, it was too it was too dangerous for him to continue racing, so he pulled it in. Um, I don't know how Marcus even kept that bike upright, to be honest. If we given what had just happened, um, not not to paraphrase Keith Ewan too much here, but when when rear wheel meets front wheel, the front wheel always so great. Yeah, like so one of the few things I agree with Keith on is that uh, yes, when that happens, the the front wheel always loses that fight, and uh, Zarco's did just that—a terrifying accident. Um, thankfully, um, Zarco was okay. Um, um, he was able to slide through most of it, frankly, rather than barrel roll, which is often what causes injuries. He was able to slide relatively flat, and I think that's and that of his levers was able to to you know, prevent major injury. Um, it was it was terrifying to watch on those. I think, I think they were live on Zarco's onboard as it happened, and it was like, oh shit! Yeah. Um, Suddenly he's um, riding into your living room. Yeah, Zarco immediately went to Marquez and apologized. Marquez didn't seem to have any problem with it. It was just, if he could just put that as one of those things, really. And I'm glad that's the end of it, really, because uh, that was a nasty, nasty one, but thankfully uh, only egos damaged more than anything else. Yeah, thank goodness. And Mark Marquez's record in Phillip Island after he's won a world title damaged because he's still now in that's three occasions now. He's won the world championship in Mategi, gone to Phillip Island for the next race and failed to finish. Um, mm. It just doesn't seem to. It's the Lewis Hamilton uh, syndrome of uh, once the World Championships won, things start to go wrong. Um, yeah. For, for Mark Marquez. Um, Andre Inone is a strange case uh, from last weekend. He finished second, so it's not like he had a bad race. It's not like he had a bad weekend, no. but. I, I can't, almost can't believe I'm saying this, Dre, but will Andre Inone leave Phillip Island feeling like he underperformed or feeling disappointed with his weekend because he was he he wasn't just quickest in all the practice sessions that weren't rain affected but he was by far the quickest he was dominant in those sessions including fp4 where i think he was half second clear of the field he clearly had the best race pace to a man when the motor gp riders were asked on saturday mm. night in the paddock who has the pace to win the race on sunday they all said andre Inone. and it yeah it's still nags away at me that yes he finished only about a second or two behind Maverick Vinales at the end of the race but we saw him make 
two or three key errors down at the Honda hairpin where he outbreaks himself and ran wide and fell back down that leading group. I still think as good as Maverick was and as good as you know other riders were in that race and Andrea Iannone's only won one race before, but I cannot shake the feeling that that race should have been Andrea Iannone's. Like I've said it before, um, no, the way the way the weekend played out, it's it's if you're being really critical, it, you have to sort of factor in that Iannone looked like he was the fastest man all weekend and didn't really convert any of it. He didn't start from pole position, even though he probably had the pace to do so. He wasn't able to put one really strong lap together. Um, on the other side of the coin, it's not the first time as well this year that he's had really fast Fridays. Like I remember the Saxon ring, he was fastest almost in every practice session, fastest in Sunday warm-up, and then, of course, didn't win because Marquez is, is basically unbeatable in Germany, um, which is a bit more understandable, to be fair. But you're right. Like Iannone's ultimate pace was good. It was very good. It was more than good enough to win that race. I mean, the paddock was right. Iannone was the threat um, during that weekend. And we saw it last five laps in open air. Iannone was carving time out of Maverick Vinales. Now, I don't know how much of that was was Maverick going in third gear to protect the bike or to protect the tires at the end, and how much of that was Iannone basically having fire coming out of the rear of his tires. But the way he rode that bike, um, it was very fast. But as you said, in in those group fights, made a couple of critical errors. Yeah, it was a it was a, it was a strange weekend uh, for, for Andre Iannone. It was like I say, it, it sounds really critical and really harsh to be just sort of speaking negatively about a mm. guy that finished second on a Suzuki. Um, but yeah, you just uh, we said this off air before we started. You couldn't help but feel that there was more on the table. Um, for Andrea last weekend, uh, given the pace he had in free practice, and given that he, as Dre said, he was pulling so much time out of that Yamaha towards the end of the race, mm. and yeah, we'll we'll never know whether that was just Maverick just stroking it home and um, just basically uh, easing towards the flag with such a comfortable lead, and whether he would have responded had he only got you know worryingly close to him. Um, we'll never know, but um, but Andrea only did finish second. Um, and he remains a bit of an enigma. This was a guy who, in the social media questions today at Sepang, was asked, what item, what one item would you feel is essential that you would always carry around with you? His answer was, a condom. Andrea hey! Iannone, ladies and gentlemen. Yes, it is. That um, is him. <laughs> that is Andrea Iannone to a T. Um, yes, but, uh, but anyway, with Mark Marquez out of the race, uh, Andrea Iannone, um, of course, will feel he had an opportunity. Andrea Vizioso will feel he had an opportunity as well. Um, but even though he didn't win the race, Dre, even though he finished third, that still, I think, represents, given recent history for Dovi and Ducati around Philip Island, that represents quite a result for them. It is not about... I mean, this is the year where arguably the title was lost for Dovi and Ducati last year. The fact that both factory Ducatis absolutely struggled in Philip Island was what ultimately, I think, did their season in forced Dovi to have to ride out of his nuts in Valencia, and that led to a double DNF for both of their riders, basically overcooking it, trying desperately to break Marquez, and it just didn't happen that weekend. Um, I mentioned it before, when Dovi crashes, you know he's you know he's going at 110%. Um, not this time around. Like, Ducati was competitive, and, you know, they were weekend and you know Bautista was right up there he had a brilliant weekend in his own right despite some um, early teething problems shall we say um, and 
yeah, Dovey was right up there in the mix again. It would be a little bit gutted, obviously, he wasn't near Maverick, a bike he normally beats to to win a race. But given where they were, like, I mean, Dovey said after the race, this was validation that we have a better bike than last year. And I can't blame him for thinking that because, mm. yeah, the Ducati GP18 was way better around here than the 17 ever was. A terrifying sign for next year, if you ask me. It is, yeah, because Philip Island is a circuit that doesn't have many of the corners that Ducati would consider their strength, you know. Doesn't have, it doesn't have any, have any long straights into big stops. It has a couple of big stops, but they're not at the end of long straights. Um, they're at the end of quite fast sweeping uh, left-hand corners. Turn four, uh, the Honda Hairpin that comes straight after Stoner Corner, and of course MG that comes straight after Lukey Heights. They're, they're pretty fast sweeping corners leading into a hairpin. Um, so Ducati doesn't really have the, the sort of straights to stretch its legs, or Dovi doesn't have the heavy stops to really show how good he is on the brakes. Um, mm-hmm. Yet they still finished third, um, so they will take that as a massive positive. As much as we've waxed lyrical about Dovi on occasions this season, though, Dre, I think we we have to save certain uh, time to talk about his teammate on this occasion, um, because of what a showing that was uh, under the circumstances. Mm-hmm. Alvaro Bautista, um, given the opportunity before he goes off to World Superbikes to ride in the factory red of Ducati in a MotoGP race said to them on Thursday before starting the race weekend that he wanted to finish fourth, and Bautista was true to his word. He brought home a fourth, his best result of the year. Um, okay, obviously, a, a bit of help from the bike and the team he was in and the potential there, but uh, he, he was in a dogfight all weekend. He had a couple of crashes in practice, had a big one in Q2 where he had to jump off the bike before Lukey Heights. Um, knowing he was going to dramatically overcook it. Um, before, yep, sod this, I'm out of here, basically. Um, but, you know, it was very good in the race. At one point, was leading Bautista, which you know, was just yeah. something that you never see from Bautista these days. Um, he was inside you know, him at the finish. He could see Dovey yeah. ahead of him. Yeah, like, you can't ask for much more than that from a guy's first ever ride on a GP18 with the factory team and the guy that's been the biggest threat to... Mark Marquez over the last, you know, two seasons and whatnot. Bautista rode an excellent, excellent race. He could do no more. Brother Ryan, who is a huge Alvaro Bautista yes. fan, was in tears after after he finished fourth and he got a massive I was about ovation. to say, the reception he got from Delinia and Ducati told us everything we need to know about what they thought of that ride. Yeah, stand innovation from the Ducati garage. About 15,000 slaps to the back and a well done, mate. Um, I don't think they could have realistically asked for any more than from Bautista than to finish directly behind his teammate within, within viewing distance. That was an exceptional ride, an exceptional performance from Bautista. And, you know, a nice little, I think, pseudo goodbye to MotoGP that, you know, if, if if there was walking proof, Bautista was good enough to be a factory level rider all along. That is your evidence right there. Yeah, and I sort of thought yeah, to myself at one point during the race, I was looking at that thinking, that is the rider I want to see take the fa- battle to Jonathan Ray next year. Absolutely. If that Alvaro Bautista shows up in World Superbikes next season, maybe just maybe Jonathan Ray won't have it all his own way um, in 2019. Of course, a lot of that depends on how good the new uh, V4 Panigale is. Um, next year um, mm-hmm. but we shall see uh, the result then Vinales the winner uh, from Iannone and Davizioso Bautista took a brilliant fourth ahead of Alex Rins so second and fifth to Suzuki that's as good as they've finished in a combined result this season uh, Valentino Rossi only sixth um, it says a lot about Valentino Yamaha and Philip Island that we're saying only sixth 
um, because mm-hmm. they'll take it a sixth on a few races this season. Uh, Jack Miller, the home favourite, did lead again his home Grand Prix for the second year in a row, but faded to seventh in the end. Franco Morbidelli, eighth. Uh, top Honda, it should be pointed out, um, because Petrosa also crashed out of the race. Um, and, of course, Cal Crutchlow didn't start it because of the crash he had on Friday. And, of course, we've already covered what happened to Mark Marquez. Uh, so Morbidelli was the uh, only Honda rider in the top 13. Uh, in the end, in eighth position. Alasia Spargo, ninth for a prettier, and Bradley Smith in the top ten for the second time this year on the KTM in tenth position. So well done to him. The other points went to Carol Abraham, Daniel Petrucci, Scott Redding, Takaki Nakagami, and congratulations in order, a first ever MotoGP World Championship point for Xavier Sibion in 15th position, who it has to be said, all joking aside, has looked much better since they've given him the 2017 Ducati, of course, Torres with the 2016 bike in that Avintia team with Rabat out of action. Championship standings then, Mark Marquez is your champion, but then you already knew that. Um, his championship lead though has shrunk um, as a result of his uh, first, first non-score since Mugello. He's now 86 ahead of Andre Vizioso in second, but more importantly, I suppose, Vizioso has extended his lead over Valentino Rossi to 15 points uh, in the battle for the runner-ups bottom with Sepang up next. That might well be too uh, big a gap to bridge for Valentino Rossi. Um, his uh, more immediate concern might well be the 15 points back to Maverick Vinales in fourth. Uh, Cal Crutchlow's hopes of finishing in the top four are now gone given his injuries. He's now uh, looking over his shoulder, uh, just 11 points ahead of Danilo Petrucci uh, with no chance of really defending it this weekend uh, given the injury that he has. Uh, Joan Zarco is now seventh uh, on 123 points. Yononi has drawn level with him now in eighth. They're both on 133. Jorge Lorenzo has dropped all the way down to ninth now, having uh, missed the last couple of races through uh, injury. And, of course, still hasn't scored a point since the summer break, unbelievably, um, with his uh, with his injuries. Uh, well, he hasn't scored points since the first race after the summer break um, back at Austria. Um, Alex Rins is a point further back in 10th on 129 points. It's close, though, actually. From Cal in 5th to Rins in 10th, just 19 points covers them um, with uh, two races to go starting in Sepang this weekend. Um, on to Moto2 then, and the Moto2 race of the season, um, without question. Uh, now, Moto2 doesn't always produce humdingers with regularity. Sometimes they're processional, sometimes they're sort of slow burner races, sometimes they are time trial races, as we saw between Quattararo mm. and Banyaya in Mategi. This one was uh, a, a classic Phillip Island group battle, I suppose, Involving a number of riders, Dre, it has to be said, who were not awfully familiar seeing battle for a victory. I know Binder ended up winning it, and of course he's now won three mm. for the season, but he beat guys, in fact, three guys in Juan Mir, Xavi Fiaque, and Augusto Fernandez, who were all between them taking a grand total of zero Moto2 victories. It was kind of a refreshing race to see four rather unusual faces battle up the front. Yeah, you were guaranteed to get like a, you're almost guaranteed to get a surprise winner in all this. Um, I, I don't think Brad Binder winning in Moto Two is as much of a surprise anymore, um, as it has been in uh in previous occasions. But uh, the our Lord and Savior, Mister Binder, did a brilliant job there, and of course it was Joanne Mir right behind him in a in a near photo finish going over the line, and man, Mir needed that because he we, we, we was, the, the hype train had cooled over Mir for quite some time. Um, not quite emulating his early season form, but to have him up there, to have Xavier in there again for a win for the first time in a while was nice. And Fernandez, geez, what a talent he's turning out to be. He's come out of nowhere this year. And is all of a sudden looking like 
you know, a guy that could be we could be thinking about as a title threat next year with the Pons outfit um, alongside Baldessari. Pons could have two top contenders very soon, and uh, that could be a very tantalising prospect indeed. It could because Fernandez was on target to finish on the podium until about roughly fifty meters before the finish line. Um, More or less. When, when Javi Vieira pulled out his slipstream and then just got nosed ahead um, on the line to finish in that final roster position. Um, the championship battle took um, it almost took someone to a back seat that it was in the next car behind. To be honest, um, mm-hmm. Francesco Ranieri and Miguel Oliveira. We'll talk about them in a second, but they're kind of linked to the battle for the win in that. A KTM won it uh, in mm. Brad Binder. Brad Binder, but now believe it or not, has won more races this season than Miguel Oliveira has. Um, amazing. Which is amazing. He's now won three to Oliveira's two. Um, because Oliveira's consistency has kept him in the championship home, whereas Binder has more had consistency of sixth places, um, to be honest, for a lot of this season. Um, but Miguel Oliveira, Drake, will come away from this race weekend, much like when Binder won at Aragon and Oliveira was what, down in seventh. Coming away from that thinking that essentially it wasn't the KTM that cost him the championship. It was his own underperformance, I suppose. And we're big fans of Oliveira on this show. I think we've, we've mm. spoken so highly about him in the past, but if ever there was a missed opportunity with Banyaya down in 12th, this was it. This really was. This was a golden carrot. It was the, okay, Banyaya's down the field. You've got, you're have got you in a much better starting position. This is your moment, Miguel. This is your time to read him in and make it interesting Go for the last two rounds. off him. Yeah, he could have easily done that. No, it just didn't have the pace either, really, to get involved with the leading group. And uh, it did him in. And, you know, it's looking very much like now that it's going to be Banyai with a real chance to wrap this up. Um, at the week, at the weekend at Sepang, we may, we may not even need Valencia to seal it up now um, because Banyai wasn't punished for uh, basically for being too slow. And... Yeah, it says a lot to me that Binder has now had the ultimate upside on more occasions. He's now won, you know, uh, three rounds out, uh, three rounds out here to Oliveira's two, and uh, yeah, it's a real shame because again, we're big fans of Miguel here, and rightly so. He's a, he's an incredibly exciting talent, but there's going to be question marks asked about the second half of his season because it just seems that Banya has pulled away and. I wouldn't say KTM has struggled because Brad Binder's come alive in the second half of the year. It's just. What's going on in that unit? It's very, very weird that all of a sudden it seems that Binder um, has done better for himself. Very peculiar. Um, and when you look at the result of the Moto2 race, it wasn't just the fact that Binder beat Oliveira. There was another KTM. It was Dominic Egerta finished sixth on a KTM ahead of Miguel Oliveira. So it wasn't like he was just his teammate beating him, but there were other KTMs ahead uh, of Oliveira. He just had a, a rank bad weekend and in the end, it's and we've said this before on this show, it's the qualifying underperformances that will cost Oliveira this championship. And Philip Island, again, just underlined that. Banyaya had a terrible weekend. As bad as he's looked mm. all season, arguably as bad as he's looked in his entire Moto2 career since the start right. of last year. He qualified down in 16th. Miguel Oliveira qualified 20th. That, by any measure, when you're fighting the championship, is not good enough. And it's not like he couldn't hide behind the fact that, oh, yeah, Moto2 is really close. He was 1.2 seconds off pole position, um, Miguel Oliveira. 
I don't care what class you're in, however close it is, if you're 1.2 seconds on pole, you're not going to start anywhere near the front these days in a motorcycle race. Because it's... No, you're, you're not. The time's too close. close. And, you know, half a second off pole would have put him on the second row. So, it, so it's not like, you know, we're asking him to be, you know, you know, matching Matei Pacini, who set a remarkable lap to take pole position before decking it on lap two. Um, you know, it was just, he was nowhere near the pace required, uh, unfortunately, to put it on pole position. Um, and it's a shame because I think we all wanted to see this go to the wire. We've seen some great battles between Bagnaia and Oliveira this season. Um, I mean, the battle they had in Austria is one of my favourite races of the season. Probably the only race that matches Philip Island for Moto2's race of the year uh, this year. Um, and don't get me wrong, Oliveira and Bagnaia had a pretty decent battle last weekend, but it was over 11th place um, in the race, which is remarkable to think um, that that's where they were fighting. But in many ways, uh, and it, we can't be too complimentary Banyaya's ride rate. He finished 12th. But right. in many ways, given where he's at in the championship, he had the luxury to simply follow Oliveira around. And he kind of did that. Exactly. That's that's what he's earned by riding so well this year. It's it's as simple as that. He's earned the luxury to not have to fight at 100% to, uh, to, to make his point. And that's exactly how it is. He's... he's He's earned this luxury. And no, it was not particularly impressive seeing Manny and Oliveira fight for 11th and 12th. And But that's the nature of the championship. You make you make the most of your bad days. And Oliveira, you know, he came up 10 places to finish in 11th in the end, which isn't terrible in, in a vacuum. But if Oliveira wants to be a title threat, that's not good enough, especially when his teammate has won the damn race again. Um, so... So yeah, question marks over over both over both main title contenders on this occasion because Marini was up there up the front as well in that in in that Moto Two fight in the early stages. So a, a bit of a bizarre weekend for the, the VR Forty Six Academy and the KTM team out there. But uh, no, Bagnaia did what he needed to do for the sake of the championship, and that's what you can really ask of him at this point. Mm, absolutely. Um, Brad Binder then the winner from Joan Mir by thirty six thousandths of a second. Xavi Fierche in third. Um, he beat Fernandez to the final podium spot by eight thousandths of a second. Uh, poor Augusto. Luca Reini fifth and Dominic Eger to sixth with Alex Marquez seventh. Jesco Raffin, who for some reason seems to like Philip Island, uh, he was fifth right. last year, finishes eighth. Marcel Schrotter came from the back of the field to beat the championship contenders um, by finishing ninth. Only six seconds off the win from the back of the grid. That was some ride from Marcel Schrotter. Although he will wish he didn't have to be that good because, of course, he stole on the double grid having qualified second. Mm. Um, so Schrotter will uh, be walking away thinking he'd done himself you know, proud, but probably could have been in that fight for the win himself. Um, with Fabio Quartararo being in the top 10. And it made me think, I suppose, Dre, that I know Philip Island's a bit of a special case because every motorcycle class that races around Philip Island has a good race, but... Joan Mir apart, that kind of made me think, this could be what Moto Two's like next year, you know. It could be. It could be. I mean, like we mentioned before, there are so many potential title threats in that. There could be twelve or thirteen names that, if everything goes their way, could end up finishing next year as champion. It could be the most wide open Moto Two title since, well, this season actually. But still, but it's it's still a lot to be potentially excited about. There is a lot of talent up and down that field um right now where maybe we could have a dozen contenders so a lot to be excited about yeah i think it's gonna be the most wide open moto 2 season since the very first moto 2 season um, mm. because i think it's almost going to be a complete reset again 
uh, of the class Absolutely. with the Triumph 675. It's going to be a more powerful engine, more electronics, a whole new way to ride the bike. Um, and it's essentially everyone's going to be starting as a rookie again, I think, um, next year. Yeah, oh, don't get me wrong. People with experience of a 600 are going to find it easier to adapt than the guys coming from Moto3, for instance. Um, but mm. I don't think, for instance, the kids coming from Moto3 are going to be as big of a disadvantage as they have been in the past because everyone's learning a new bike next year. Um, so it's going to be fascinating to watch because that opening Moto2 season that we had in 2010, I think we had about seven or eight different winners that year uh, when Tony yeah. Elias won the title. Jules Clazel, the aforementioned, of course, was one of them um, back in oh, 2010. Oh, right. Uh, he won at Silverstone. So the, the, there's, there's every reason to suggest that next year's Moto2 season is going to be wide open. Um, but first of all, before we move on to Moto3, uh, here's how this current Moto2 championship standings look. Banyaya on 288 leads Oliveira by 36. Um, if you're not familiar with the point system and the maths, third or higher this weekend for Banyaya at Sepang, and he is the champion. Uh, and that's assuming Oliveira wins the race. Uh, Brad Binder mm. looks like he's going to finish third now. He only needs to score nine points in the final two races to confirm himself as third overall. Uh, Lorenzo Baldassari is still fourth, although he uh, crashed out down at the MG uh, hairpin towards the end of that race when he was in that leading group. Uh, he's now only three points ahead of Juan Mir, who goes ahead of Alex Marquez now in the championship into Yikes. Marquez sixth, um, having finished seventh last weekend. Marcel Schrotter is seventh, just ahead of his teammate Xavi Vieje. Luca Marini ninth, and Fabio Quartararo goes ahead of Matteo Pacini into the top ten. Pacini, as I mentioned, took the pole position and then looped it on lap two. Uh, right, into Moto3. Uh, and we wanted to save a bit of time to talk about this race. Um, because uh, as I've kind of uh, hinted in the running order, quite simply, Dre, as I ask uh, for a reflection on that Moto3 race we saw last weekend, I simply ask, what the fucking hell was that? Ah! I have seen uh, in the last... Well, this is the seventh season of Moto3 since it changed from 125s, and I've seen every single Moto3 race. That is up there with the best I've ever seen. <laughs> it, it is arguably the best Moto3 race of all time. It, and there has been some true classics, um, some true holy shit races in Moto3 over the years. It, this gets the rare Dre, are you fucking kidding me, racing yes. out of 10? Um... Um, I don't break it out very often. It only I save it for very special occasions, um, and I've and, I, and it's, it's the first time I've done it with a Moto Three probably since Magello last year. Um, this was incredible. It was an absolutely incredible spectacle. I have never, ever seen racing like it. Um, to put it into perspective, like I think the, the the shot you're all probably thinking of, and it's understandable given how special it was was the final lap and coming onto the final lap, they, they yeah, cut to the overhead shot. The yeah, well, you cut to the overhead shot and they're going seven wide down the home straight into turn one. There is the first 11 bikes over the line are separated by 0.1 of a second. 0.1. It's like watching the, the top 14. <laughs> It's ridiculous. It's a joke. It's like watching a peloton come over the line in the Tour de France. You're only at 140 miles an hour. It doesn't make any sense. It was utterly ridiculous. Fact, it wasn't... That, point three covered the top 15, so the entire point scorers were within a third of a second of each other. Because, of course, Ertel kind of fell back on the final lap when he tangled with Martin down at the Stoner Corner. Um, but... Um, 
Um, we'll come on. We'll come on to how this came about in a moment, Dre. But uh, we'll mm. work chronologically because, of course, there is a real fierce battle for the championship going on in Moto3. Oh god, yeah. And there was a key incident earlier on uh, in the race, around two thirds distance. Marco Bezzecchi, who uh, was, it shouldn't be forgotten, was riding heroically. He'd qualified down in fifteenth um, mm. and came up to lead the race and was doing a similar job to what he did in Bettegi in that he was keeping himself as close to that front of the group as he possibly could to try and stay as safe as possible. But as Moto3 proves, even when you try to stay out of trouble, trouble can find you. Um, and in this case, it was Gabriel Rodrigo. It's just the way this Moto3 season is panning out. The championship contenders just cannot stay out of trouble. And Marco Bezzecchi, doing absolutely nothing wrong, just gets torpedoed by Gabby Rodrigo. Yeah, Rodrigo goes in too hot down, down the hill into Lukey Heights and basically Bezeki just gets collected from Rodrigo's mistake. There was, it was not Bezeki's fault at all. Um, he's just, he's a bystander as Rodrigo goes in too hot. They, they, Bezeki tries to hold on to it. He can't do it. He falls off and that is the end of Bezeki's race. And you could see, like, they were, they were the, amazingly, the directors knew what they're doing. They, when Albert Arenas won saw Martin come over the line in, in what was inevitably fifth place in the end. They cut immediately to the garage of Pazeki's, and you could see he looked distraught mm. on the sidelines. He was beside himself. Like, he just devastated. His team was, was having to console him because it was just like a great overall vibe of, oh, no, not again. It's the second It's the second time in the last three rounds, and I think the fourth time this year, Bezeki's been taken out by another rider's mistake. Um, it's, it's, it's I said it before, like, unforced errors are going to decide this championship, and it looks like it, that's, what, that's what's going to happen, because it's like every round now, one of the front two contenders is, is either getting injured in massages or getting taken out in a Grand Prix. It doesn't yeah. make any sense. It is, and, and I, I remember tweeting at the time when I was watching the race live, and I was live tweeting it, and I, I was like, even when Bezeki was taken out, I was like, this ain't lost for Bezeki yet. Because, no, it's because, not. Because how big the group was, I was thinking to myself, Jorge Martin could quite easily finish this race outside the top ten. Quite right. easily. Um, because it was clear he didn't have the pace to gap them. At one point, he was dropping to the bottom of the top 10 because the group mm. was so big. And you mentioned unforced errors, Dre. Uh, and mm. uh, for, for fear of being slightly critical and maybe controversial, was Martin's tactics at the start of the final lap an unforced error? He looked behind him coming through that final mm. corner. He backed the pack up almost like they were starting again after a safety car or something. Right. Put the entire group on top of him. Did he essentially outsmart himself? Maybe. Um, was he, was he, like, hindsight's a wonderful thing, but wouldn't he have been better off just running it? Uh, he would have been gobbled up by turn one either way. Um, I don't think... I mean, he might have actually done himself a favour by getting a toe halfway down so the damage wasn't so great because I think he came through turn two in third i'm um, having to get past um philip otel yeah he then tangled with Ertel at stoners and that dropped him back didn't it exactly so i don't know it's maybe martin was a bit too smart for his own good on that one i don't know it's impossible to say um for sure um i think i don't think he drew i think i think he was it was clever. I'll say that much. I mean, you don't yeah. want to be yeah. you don't want to be leading going into the final straight in theory. But then, yeah. I mean, I was Albert watching, Arena. thinking maybe he's being a bit too clever here because he was almost trying. He was almost like 
falling over himself, trying not to lead uh, onto that right. straight. And as, as a result, right, it just put the whole field on him uh, rather than like one or two bikes slipstreaming him. He had like 12 of them all over him. Um, right going down the main straight and it just it just created that mayhem uh on the final lap and yeah i i just wonder whether he he might feel that he could have just cause we've seen him do this at the end of races like it would have been almost impossible to do it at phillip island because of the nature of the track but we've seen him on the final lap before just just gap people um, right and, and just and he, just just set a blistering final lap to that. pull away from them and he um, tried that twice during the race and he couldn't do it. Yeah, they just pulled him back in again. Um, yeah, it, it, yeah, hindsight's a wonderful thing, but I, I do still wonder whether whether Martin mm. perhaps got that slightly wrong uh, in the end. Um, it was an extraordinary last lap with, uh, as I mentioned at the start of it, the, the 15 point scorers were within a third of a second. They were all in one camera shot um, mm. on the overhead helicopter shot. Um, to quote the great Charlie Cox um, on a famous touring car race, he once said they're bubbling around like lotto balls. Um, uh, and that's what they were. And out came lucky number 75 for Albert Arenas, um, who started the final lap in 11th and ended it in the lead um, for what we shouldn't forget is his second win of the season. Um, his right. first that he's taken on tracks, he won uh, post-race after Gian Antonio got hooked out of the top three uh, at Le Mans. Um, we have to congratulate the winner. We can't say he was lucky, but there is a big element of right place, right time about this. Well, Martin bumped into Otel and lost about half a second at turn two, and that and that gave her the space to probably win that race. Like I mean, when, when there are four, 15 guys all going for the one piece of racetrack, it's impossible to know who's going to end up nosing out of that lot ahead. And the Red Ass in the end just about nicked it. Yeah, exactly. It was a carnage-filled race. We, we, we haven't even barely mentioned Massia and Ramirez hitting yeah. each other. Obviously, Rodrigo and Bezecchi hitting each other. There was another one late on. Uh, um, and yeah, and uh, Foggia. Arbolino, I think it was, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, was it Arbolino? Yeah, yeah, it was Foggia and Arbolino down at the uh, the Honda hairpin on the penultimate lap. Exactly. So there, there, was, there was multiple incidents of contact and guys running each other off the road and yeah, it was not ideal, to say the least. Um, but that's the nature of this circuit. And when, it, when the rating is that close, it's never going to stay contact-free for long. And that's that's what we got here, basically. And uh, yeah, I mean, it is what it is. I mean, again, you can't blame for that one. He got to the front and he gunned it. Arenas was vulnerable going down the home straight and was able to hold them off. Um and hold on to the start finish line, which is not all the way down. Um, you've got a little bit of breathing room there, so who knows? But uh, Arenas, lucky number 75 came through for him on this occasion, his second win of the season, believe it or not. Um, going back to the uh, another carnage filled race at Le Mans, um, for the Angel Nieto team. But, uh, you know, sometimes it's, it's better to be lucky rather than good, and Albert Arenas may have just proven that. Good like for I him. Said, <laughs> right place, right time, um, for Arenas. And sometimes, as she just says, it pays to be in the right place at the right time. We have to talk about the two other guys on the podium, um, uh, starting <laughs> with uh, the man in second. And what a week it's been, Dre, for Fabio Di Gian Antonio, who had an ejecta-seat crash at Mategi uh, that we thought at the time, and assumed at the time, was the end of his world championship. Um, mm. He didn't remember the crash. He was a doubt for Phillip Island. Not only did he race at Phillip Island, he finished his second, three places and eight points ahead of his teammate, Jorge Martin. And, of course, Pazeki didn't score, so he pulls 20 points off him. 
nothing, nothing would sum up this Moto3 season quite <laughs> like Fabio Di Antonio coming out of the blind side from nowhere and winning the whole damn thing. Fuck it. Why not, right? <laughs> <laughs> At this point, right? <laughs> like at this point, I've got nothing left for you. Like we've we've seen all the other like potentially crazy shit that's gone on this season. I mean, wouldn't that be like the final cherry on top? <laughs> would would like for DJ to come in and steal the title the way that Zeki and Martins had incidents have been collected by other people that have been generally unlucky pretty much all the way through this year. Um, yeah. it, imagine it, it imagine doing the review of that. Yeah, we had a season-long battle between Martina Bezeki and the championship was won by Tijan Antonio. Yeah, like like it's, it's funny. Like DJ Antonio has been slashed. He was twenty-two to one last week to win the Moto Three title. He's now fourteens, and I still think that's too high. <laughs> yeah. um, the way the way it's going right now. Um, Jorge Martin three to ten, um, Marco Bezeki thirteen to five, given his minus twelve going into this round. But you're right, the way it's going, DJ Tennis got a shot here. He's got a real chance to win this title now. Only eighteen points away with two rounds to go. If he can stay out, like the guy that stays out of trouble the least, might just win this championship in the end. And DJ yeah. Antonio could very well qualify under that bracket. The way it's going, absolutely. He's as we said, he's eighteen points now for the championship lead and. Yeah, I've, I've said this before. It, it, with two races to go, that, of course, still sounds like quite a big gap. But I, I always put it in these terms when we're so late in the season. Think of this this was the start of the final race of the season. He'd be going into the final race of the season with a genuine mathematical chance of winning the title. Um, and I always say, it, even if you're way behind, if you just get into that final race with a chance, who knows what can happen, especially in Moto3. So if DC can get it to Valencia and Bezeki. They can get it to Valencia and to be somewhere close to Martin. Who the hell knows uh, what's going to happen uh, in I this Moto3 Championship uh, finale. Of course, it could be wrapped up this weekend, conversely, for Martin, if results go his way. But who the hell knows? We have to finish, though, Dre, by talking about the other rider on the podium. Um, because we, we discussed his promotion into the Sky VR46 team at the, for next season a few weeks ago. None of us knew who Celestino Vietti was. We certainly do now. He, he looked like he'd been here before. Um, <laughs> yeah. That was an excellent ride for him. Sometimes it's better to just stay out of trouble and let everybody else trip each other up. And I think that's what happened here. Since he never let, he kept his nose clean, kept out of trouble, rode his he race. Saw him until the final lap. Yeah, he just came out of nowhere. Like, it was ridiculous. Like... Foggia had been taken out, his teammate had already gone down, and there'd been carnage around him, and he's just rode clean, come through, followed the right followed the right man in Martin coming down the home straight, finished in third in his second ever Grand Prix on the podium. How oh, very maverick. Brilliant ride from the youngster. <laughs> yeah, he was um yeah, he clawed his way up to ninth at the start of the penultimate lap, so he wasn't quite as far back as uh, as others mm. were, but yeah, he he spent most of the race at the back of that leading group, and he's one of those where even if he finished at the back of the leading group, you'd have thought well, that's a good ride um, from Vietti. But he must have he must have had a nosebleed. He must have felt practically giddy as he rode down that main straight to start the final lap, and suddenly saw all the bikes just like parting ahead of him. And he just right. said, hang on, I'm in second place now. Uh, like, what the hell do I do now? Um, so um, he, he held it together, showed great maturity in that final lap. Didn't give an inch to Jorge Martin, who tried to dive up the inside of him into the MG hairpin three corners from home and got his nose clipped off um, by mm. Vietti. So he wasn't giving any inches um, to the championship favourite. Great ride from Vietti. And 
yeah, he, he looks like he's got a future, this kid. It's it's a proof, once again, that not only does VR46 as an academy prepare riders for Grand Prix, but the, the Junior World Championship does it. Because Fietti hasn't exactly been pulling up trees um, in this Junior World Championship this season. Um, right. A championship that looks like it's going to be won by uh, by Raul Fernandez. Um, but that that clash just, just produces countless world-class riders. By the time you've ridden in that championship for a year you're ready for Grand Prix racing. Um, and, and Vietti has proved it that, you know, you might not necessarily have been, you know, a, a race leading contender many times in that CEV championship, but riding in that series just prepares you so well um, for mm. what's to come in the Grand Prix paddock. And what a, what a performance he put in last weekend. Let's give you the, uh, frankly, mind-boggling result uh, of the <laughs> Moto3 race from last weekend. Albert Arenas wins it by 52 thousandths of a second from Fabio Di Gian Antonio who's seven thousandths of a second ahead of Yeti in third. He, in turn, is 29,000, uh, sorry, 22 thousandths ahead of Suzuki in fourth. Tatsuki Suzuki finished fourth, guys. I think that's a career wow. best. Jorge Martin mm. finished fifth. He was 99 thousandths of a second off winning the race, and he finished fifth. Aaron Cannett was 0.15 of a second off winning it in sixth. Adam Norodin, 0.188 off in seventh. And Air Bastianini was 0.235 behind in eighth. Jakob Kornfile, 0.328 down in ninth. And Ayuru Sasaki... We'll go home thinking I was only 0.406 of a second off winning my first Grand Prix and I finished 10th. Um, <laughs> the, uh, the top 14 were covered by uh, 0.989 of a second going down to John McPhee. Philip Berkeley, who had that tangle with uh, with McMartin halfway around the final lap, finished 15th. So he, uh, he had a minor wobble halfway around the final lap and dropped from 2nd to 15th. Poor guy. Not two seconds. Fair. Two seconds off the win and he scores one point. Not poor guy. Um, that was your point scorers. Championship standings then. Two races to go in this remarkable, remarkable Moto3 season. Jorge Martin leads it. Um, but even at this stage, with two races to go, 12-point lead, you still don't really feel like he's safe. 215 points to Bezeki's 203. Dejan Antonio on 195. Um, so he's 20 points off the lead with two to go. Uh, Bastianini, fourth on 150. Dalla Porta, fifth on 131. Canet, sixth on 128. Rodrigo, seventh on 116. Confile, eighth on 115. Albert Arenas, up to ninth now with his second win of the season on 94. He goes ahead of Marcos Ramirez, who is on 90 points. One new story to bring you before we uh, wrap this podcast up. Uh, in the edit, it will seem a lot shorter than in actuality it was um, yeah. due, to, due to a few technical gremlins at our end. Uh, hopefully the power of editing will uh, make sure you don't notice them unless you listened in live. Our apologies <coughs> if you did. Um, but the World Tube Sport 300 news uh, for next season because, of course, uh, they will be uh, the third of three classes next season. There's no Superstock 1000 next season, so we'll have three classes, much like we do in MotoGP these days. Uh, World Tube Sport 300 is the uh, essentially the Moto3 equivalent in the Superbike paddock, and they are introducing an interesting new format for 2019. We suspected they may be introducing two races rather than one, and they sort of are, um, but not the way you think. Um, they Essentially, the grid numbers for next season are so high, they've been so oversubscribed for next season in Super Sport 300 that they're essentially going to have two groups of practice and two groups of qualifying uh, next season in World Super Sport 300, where the top 30 combined times will see the, the top 30 qualify for the race. Everyone from 31st backwards, and we don't know how many riders this might end up being, will <laughs> compete, Dre, in a last chance qualifier, which in itself sounds brilliant. 
Um, oh, but, yeah. Like, but, this is like old-school Formula 1 right here. 31st <laughs> backwards after combined free practice will race in a last-chance qualifying race. The top six will earn themselves qualifying to the actual race itself on the Sunday. I can't wait to see this. I didn't know they had that many entries in for yeah. next year that they have to have a last chance they, qualifying. They must dude. have 50-plus entries, surely. Yeah, because, like, 30, they've only got room on the grid for 36 then by that by that logic. So, Jesus Christ, did, how many entries did they get for next year? The series is dirt cheap then, but uh, there's going to be a lot of guys that won't make the grid next year, for better or worse, which is a bit of a bummer, but hey. Sod's law and all that. So yeah, it's gonna be very interesting to see how that plays out in you know in actuality and in format and just seeing just how many entries we get when the full season list is revealed. I'm very in- interested and curious to see how that is. But that sounds very exciting. I can't wait to see how it plays out. It's another nice little feather in the cap for the Superbike paddock going forward. Yeah, the feather in the cap of as you say, the, the Supersport three hundred class. To, to see how it's progressed in two years, that they they are their grids are oversubscribed for next year is is a great feather in the cap of the new class that's been introduced two years Absolutely. ago. Uh, the Supersport 300 is clearly working um, and it's clearly um, cost-effective and it's clearly producing good young talent. But I could just imagine next season, we're going to have a scenario somewhere where potentially we're going to have someone like a Carrasco or a, or a Daru or a Grunwald or someone who's going to have to go <laughs> to the last chance qualifying race to try and get themselves yeah. on the grid. Um, what a scenario that would be um, at some stage next season. We can't wait to see how that goes. One other line on World Supersport 300, they will go to Qatar next season for the first time. Um, for the first time, the Supersport 300 class will go to a round outside of Europe. Um, they will be running at the European rounds and at Qatar. So all three classes next season, Superbike, Supersport and Supersport 300, will all come to a close in Qatar next November. Um, we don't know yet uh, what the complete calendar is going to be for 2019. We've had a sort of predicted sort of draft of what the uh, MCN uh, reporters, Greg Haynes, um, and Michael Guy think it will be for next year with the addition of circuits like Kyle Lamy uh, for 2019 yeah. as well as the return of Hareth potentially a 14 round calendar for next season which means if you're keeping count 42 World Superbike races next season with the addition of the third sprint race per weekend it's going to be a long old season we're going to see riders breaking all time of points records uh, what's the betting Jonathan Ray gets a thousand points next season um, with um, the, uh, with even the- money with the, uh, with, the, uh, with the addition of so many races next year we shall see um, but we're we're reaching the end now of this uh, this busy period of the, of the MotoGP season it's the third of the three Asia Pacific flyaways uh, that all run back to back this weekend the Malaysian Grand Prix which is where every uh, broadcaster rolls out the Rossi Marquez replays from three years ago um, as if they haven't been played enough um, never but I don't think we're going to see those two quite as close on track this weekend. Uh, really, Dre, the, the headline act is really MotoGP. It's Bagnaia looking to clinch the Moto2 Championship and Mark, uh, sorry, Martin looking to clinch the Moto3 Championship. I can't help mm. but feel that this Moto3 Championship is going to go down to the wire, but I think it's odds on that Bagnaia clinches this weekend, isn't it? I think it's odds on that Bagnaia clinches it here. I mean, Line or one to two hundred to win the title. Um, so they're saying this is good as over, and I'm inclined to agree. I don't, I don't think Mania's got two bad races in a row in him, um, and I think he's he's been the class of the field and I don't this think year. Got two wins in him. I don't think so either. So I think I think Vanyai will clinch. I think I think Moto Three will go the distance. I'll be I'll be shocked. It's, it's, it's going to take a, probably another clash or. Or incident of some kind for for that to go any other way, but uh, oh boy, um, 
So, uh, yeah, I, I don't think Moto 3 will clinch, but I think Moto 2 will. Yeah, and I think I, Dovi will win the title. I agree on that. Um, the, the Moto 3 track at Sepang, of course, with the long straights up to the yeah the final corner or long straight to the first corner, it, it screams Bazeki KTM territory to me. Um, mm-hmm. it, it looks like it's a circuit layout that's geared towards Bezeki and KTM. You know, if they're anywhere close on the run to the final corner, that Bezeki will just motor past. Of course, predict a Moto three race at your peril these days. Um, right, but, but we shall see. It kind of has the feeling of a KTM round to it, and Valencia certainly has the feeling of a Honda Martin round. Um, having seen what he did there last year, so um, Bezeki may not necessarily be out of the championship contention this weekend, but you kind of get the feeling that this is the one he's got to win. Um, so just so. just to set himself up for Valencia to give himself a chance uh, at that final round. But hey, the way this World of Three season's going, who the hell knows? Whatever happens, mm-hmm. we'll be back next week on episode 86 to review the Malaysian Grand Prix um, at uh, Sepang. Um, as the uh, MotoGP season reaches its penultimate round. Also next week, episode 168 of Motorsport 101. Um, Dre's had a week since to record your Motorsport 101's previous episode to try and come up with an idea for next week's episode. Dre, any uh, any ideas yet? Uh, still on the construction. skip weeks. Ugh. This is always the worst of it when it's the end of the Formula One season. There isn't really a whole lot to talk about, know that knowing that Formula E is not going to start till December. You know, NASCARs. We don't really watch NASCAR and cover it all that frequently because they're racing at Texas as part of their playoffs this weekend, if I'm if I remember correctly. And that's about it, as RJ pointed out after we recorded last week's show. That really is about it. We're probably going to dig into the mailbag. I'm trying my very best to save my revamped top 10 of all time list idea till after the F1 season. I may have to bust it out early. We'll have to wait and see. It'll be one of those two. I might even let the Discord take a vote on this. Yeah. So if you guys are listening in... suggesting F1 season review because it's basically over. Yeah. Like, I don't want to review it that early. Yeah, but let's, uh... not, let's not bother with Abu Dhabi and Brazil. Sod it. Let's just review the season next week instead. Yeah. <laughs> Who knows? That's, that's, that's King in our Discord that pointed that out literally seconds ago. Um, not a terrible idea in hindsight, really. But um, yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll we'll do that next week. Motorsport 101, episode 168. Episode still under construction. We'll get yeah. back to you on that one. Yeah, uh, title jumping the gun. Um, but, uh, but yeah, <laughs> we'll be back, um, whatever happens, for uh, Motorsport 101, episode 168 next week. And episode 86 of Bike Live to uh, review the Malaysian MotoGP as the Moto2 and 3 championships could well be decided. But my thanks to all of you for listening live on Discord. Because it's been a a bit of a bumpy recording if you've listened in live. My thanks to all of you for listening on the download um, ever since. As I say, we'll be back next week. But this week's episode of of Bike Live. Uh, So Sandra Cortese, crowned World Super Sport Champion, and Maverick Vinales returned to winning ways. It really was return of the Mac at Philip Island. We'll see you again next week.